I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Cowboys Disagree on Equine Requirements. Some uh, some yakking about these old cowpokes and their scuffles. I just came for the sarsaparilla. They're all like, build a railroad. Sure, if I can be the captain of it. I ain't afraid of no railroad. And then some people are like, I am afraid of the railroad. I am afraid of the railroad. I was lying. More specifically, I'm afraid of someone else making more profit on the railroad than I can. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, what are we doing here? What are you doing around my parts? We're doing old West accents, my boy. Yeehaw! It's the last week we can do them for a time. Yeah, we can basically do them whenever. This can also be like if we're doing like political documentaries about people that w- bought into the Swift Boat campaigners. <laughs> yeah, John Kerry didn't serve in Vietnam. <laughs> fake medals he threw out. Read them, read them, do your research. Uh, uh, yeah, no, where we left to watch, we're a movie podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna do it the whole episode. Why not? Uh, what they, what can they do? Turn us off? They do that anyway, probably at some point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. This month, super easy to compare and contrast because we're doing uh, Once Upon a Time and We Love to Watch, which I think is our fourth title in four weeks for this month. But we're doing um, the uh, the, f- the uh, antipasto fir- for the antihero. That's a good one too. Yeah. Yeah, I stole that from Anthony in the first week episode. <laughs> I know, but we don't remember till we edit and release, so that tells you where we are. <laughs> <laughs> from an early recording standpoint. Uh, our entire next month and a couple weeks is already recorded, but we, we kind of slowed down. We took our time. Old West moves at a slow pace up until a railroad came, and so we've been we've been really absorbing these and watching a bunch of other spaghetti westerns, but we're doing Ser- uh, Sergio Leone's first four westerns uh which just leaves one western essentially out kind of two one and a half uh but we did the dollars trilogy over the last few weeks and we're wrapping it up with what a lot of people consider his uh his masterpiece overall and his masterpiece as a western which is once upon a time in the west which is less spaghetti western and more uh postmodern john ford uh, take on 50s American westerns with still some really great Leone touches. Um, I will say, I, I'm just going to get this out. Still chock full of Italians, though. You got to admit that. <laughs> I, I would never not admit that. <laughs> uh, but like it's got, I mean, it really is specifically, we'll talk about where this script comes from and the fact that they got like Paramount money to do, to shoot Monument Valley and like how so much of this movie was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be John Ford. Yeehaw. 
and I'm going to make him. And that's why he uh, Leone agreed to do this. But I will say this just to set the stage. And I, I, this is a statement that could easily get me canceled. Uh, at least when it comes to people that are interested in hearing what I have to say for the rest of this episode, but not as a, as a person or an ethical human being. Uh, but not only did we watch in, you know, the last few weeks, the three, dollars uh movies the man with no name trilogy uh we've talked about peter and i i think i ended up watching we didn't talk about many last week only because we were getting we're so into the good the bad, and the ugly but dollars i watched in senseless violence that's another good one a lot of god good, damn it a lot of week good stuff. four week four is when i come up with dollars and senseless violence anyway. clearly clearly you were paying attention to what i was saying too <laughs> <laughs> um, but you said, uh, the dollars, you said the dollars movies in another one, and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute, dollars, dollars and cents. cents. That's dollars and some change. A change is coming, like the railroad in the old <laughs> west." Um, yeah, so uh, you know, I watched a ton of these. Right, Bull for the General, uh, Mercenary, uh, just just a lot of these that are really. Uh, they're not as good as the Leone movies for the most part, although I, a couple of them come pretty close. I actually think like the Mercenary and Bullet for the General are fucking <laughs> almost as so good, good as like uh, so Fistful good. of Dollars or f- for a few dollars more. But they're all kind of copying that high, hyper-violent, hyper-fun, a lot of energy style. And so that's really been my diet of movies and westerns over the last few weeks. And I got to say, even though I love this movie and I think it's a masterpiece, this is a weird way to end this month where I feel like uh, this is a fantastic movie. And when I saw it the first couple times in a vacuum separated from all that, I, I you know, would have pontificated about it for a long time and, and still will tonight. But I also like it's a, it's a little bit of a come down from everything else I've just watched. And I know that's intentional. Um, and that's what makes it so good, but it is a it is um it's kind of a weird way to cap this month tonally, and maybe that fits well, right? We got the uh, heightened parody of westerns, and now we're getting death of the west, death of the genre type stuff. So uh, it definitely fits if we were thinking about this as like a, that's the theme. Um, but it does feel like this will probably be my last spaghetti-ish Western for a, a while. I still have a few that I bought that I haven't seen uh, that I need to get to. Uh, I've just watched a lot in a very short amount of time. I have other movies I want to watch. Uh, it does feel like a weird come down, um, like a hangover from everything else I've watched. You know, I agree, but also uh, I, I think it's kind of the perfect way to end the month because – in a sense, because what we've been actually talking about all month is how Leone over time infused these movies with a sense of melancholy that grew greater as the movies grew on to the point that like in Good Man, the Ugly is essentially a, lamenta- a lamentation about um, the horrific losses that happened in the American Civil War. Uh, and how this country couldn't get their shit together um, and just just figure out a way to not own slaves um, uh, as opposed to fighting a massive senseless war that turned brother against brother and all that um, to the point that the the man with no name, the man with, with no real morals or ethics other than, you know, getting the next dollar, um, even he uh, broke uh, at, at the site of the Civil War. And it, 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 there's this gradually growing sense of maturity 
alongside the sense of melancholy. Um, and so like the movies actually, as they go on, speak to me more and more um, because they're gripping me in, in my inner, my, in my heart, my inner sad boy heart um, in, a, in a place that gets me because at the end of the day, I want to I, I wanna pretend like I'm a cool Chad guy. Uh, I just want to see cool action movie stuff, um, which the last three movies are just chock full of. Uh, I want that, but I want everybody to be sad after they do the violence and to not feel much better about it. Um, And this does feel like an amazing epilogue to the excitement adventure that this country, this country um, had an open frontier um, and there was such excitement for people to go out and cut out their their parcel of the land. Um, But over time, uh, people started to realize that there was an immense blood cost um, to Native Americans, to other Americans, to the land, to the peep, to the the animals, um, and uh, it, it, once the land was settled, we realized like, oh, we made the same mistakes here that we made, <laughs> we made in Europe, um, and so like that's why I think it's kind of a perfect end of the month because like I don't think you can talk about westerns, I don't know if you can talk about westerns without talking about the death of the West, and this is a movie that's about the death of a West in a way that like feels like it's trying to um, come to come to peace with that process, that progress as best as it can. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's right, because, I mean, you literally have I mean, you have both like a, a meta death of the West and the ushering in of a new era. And then like the one that happens literally in in the film, right? You have truly, especially because Harmonica in this movie was supposed to be played by Clint Eastwood, but Clint Eastwood and Leone were not talking after Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and Eastwood refused to work with him again, um, which I think we talked about a little bit last week of some of the falling out on the set of the that movie. But uh, so you have, uh, you have uh, uh, Death Wish himself, Charles Bronson, take his place. But I mean, you can see where that's easily. And then Henry Fondra, which is, uh, we'll talk more about his casting and how important one of the he best casting be. moves of all time. Yeah, and but he, I mean, he is like the epitome of the fucking like fifties western, right? Like uh, he was in so many of those movies, uh, and you know, in and John, like even a John Ford, like my darling Clementine, like he is, he is one of the iconic western stars of the forties and fifties, and he, you know, and Leona here is making a movie about those figures, you know, disappearing or dying off and also a level of altruism by, you know, the people that were made for a lawless time like Harmonica and Cheyenne and uh, and Frank that are essentially giving way literally to to a, a more civilized, a less lawless, theoretically – uh, less less uh, anti-hero based justice uh, West that gives way underneath them and some of them are fighting that and some of them are kind of altruistically almost making way for a better future that uh, that they don't that they know they won't be a part of by the nature of who they are so it really is about and arguably they're both they're all dead at the end we'll get to not, that not not our, well harmonica may be the only one that doesn't but uh i mean yeah, yeah i mean uh, you're, you're, there's a yeah there's a theory and i i'll, I'll dive into it because i think it's actually fun later but there's a theory that harmonica was dead the whole time wow what i cannot wait to get into that peter thank you for bringing that to the show <laughs> it's the only time I've ever been excited by one. Did you know that all Pixar movies take place in the same universe, Peter? 
Uh, no, uh, can you point just me a, to maybe a hundred cracked articles? Just, just a theory. Do your research. <laughs> <laughs> you have your research and I have mine. Yeah, like, everyone's entitled to their facts. Um, yeah, and, uh, I will say, though, that, like, uh, one of the saddest things I heard, <laughs> uh, researching this movie is that, uh, so what the movie that Leone makes after this, um, Fistful of Dynamite or Ducky Sucker, uh, a lot of critics were kind of rough on him about how pessimistic, uh, and apocalyptic the ending of that movie was. And Leone was like, didn't you see my other movie? That was about the, the end of that. That was an apocalypse for men. The, like he's like I, it was supposed to be sad about the the death of the true man and the feminization of the West. I'm like, oh, it's like the last thing I read about you right before I went to record. Oh no! He also died um, before he could ever um, either double down on this stuff or uh, come to a, a you know a, a gradual reflection on it later. Right? I would bet all my money on double down uh, just because I. He's from that generation where it feels like learning was frowned upon. Um, but uh, it's tough to say, though, because, like, you know, I, I don't I, I think like some of Scorsese's early movies uh, don't necessarily portray women in the best light. And, it, and then he grew to be a more empathetic filmmaker uh, as time went on and like had some amazing uh, women characters in his film. So, like, who, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Or he's like a Terry Gilliam. It's like Trump's the only one speaking the truth these days. That's what my movie Brazil's about. Like, oh God, no. what a fucking bummer! I can only I can only allot like a couple Terry Gilliams in my in my life right now. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, it was weird that like you know I read I read two books about Leone right, and I just did a lot of research, and literally two hours before recording, I I come across that quote, and I'm like, oh jeez, like oh, uh, I, but it's. Uh, I get what's what's funny is that I did not get that reading from the movie, so maybe Leone had a very bad day with someone yeah, in we'll, his life. We'll talk about that. Some of that is the fact that he co-wrote this movie with Bertolucci and Argento, and Bertolucci I don't think holds uh, those particular beliefs, and uh, Argento certainly doesn't either. You mean the director of Last Tango in Paris isn't a isn't a woke friend of marginalized people? <laughs> shocking yeah i do want to get i want to get all that so let's why don't we start that let's start with the making of this movie because before we actually get into the recap and the plot so uh we talked about this last week good the bad and the ugly swan song like it feels like he intended to be a swan song when you watch that final shootout the score swelling the amount of time like devoted to everything that's going on I said it last week. This feels like someone's like last statement. Like this is what I'm leaving the world. This is the one they're going to remember me by. Uh, and Leone thought that that wasn't just my interpretation of the scene. Leone was like, I'm done with Westerns. I have all these other ideas uh, that I want to do and I don't want to do Westerns. Well, the problem is in uh, America, money talks and bullshit walks and uh, Paramount saw how successful these movies were be, uh, in, in America and across the nation. And in America, we talked about this a few times, all three of the Dodge Trilogy comes out within months of each other in 1967 because they were they just were not convinced that they would be American hints, hits after the first two. And then when they were hearing the buzz about the third one, uh, they decided to release all three over the course of the summer. And so, and they were huge hits. Um 
And so Paramount wanted to get on the Lone uh, business, and he turned down some, like, amazing offers, right? Like, we're going to get Charlton Heston and Kirk Douglas, and you're going to have freedom to shoot in America and all these things. And he's like, I'm done. I don't want to make Westerns. And then finally, Paramount came back with, okay, more money. Uh, You can shoot some of the locations shooting in America. And then the Trump card. Uh, we're going to get Henry Fonda to be in your movie. And we talked about Fonda Henry. We know you're fond of Henry. And also, this Henry Fox. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been called Henry Fucked-a. Um But, uh, but uh, we talked about this all the way back in A Fistful of Dollars, possibly. Uh, I definitely thought about it. We may have said it out loud that uh, he had initially wanted Henry Fonda to be in the the Clint Eastwood role, and unsurprisingly, Henry Fonda's like, no fucking way! Like, why would I do that with someone who's made one random like uh, uh, peplum film and and fly to Italy for no money? I'm Henry fucking Fonda, um, and he's just never. He tries to get him in the Lee Van Cleef role, and for a few dollars more, he tries to get him in Good Bad the Ugly. Just has no interest, and so that was kind of the carrot that made him want to come back. And he's like, "Fine, I'll make a western." His thing though was is like he didn't have that much to say left about the West. Um, you know, the, those movies, uh, the Dollar Trilogy serve as both like almost a parody and a, uh, it blowing up to mythical proportions of the uh, the Old West as depicted in the, the 1950s American films that Leone and a lot of other Italian directors had loved so much. And he's like – so he met with two of his other good friends, uh, uh, Argento and Bertolucelli and said, let's – like we're, we're doing – we're doing love American style. Let's just watch a bunch of these movies and just put it all into one movie and call it Once Upon a Time in the West. And that's what they did. There's a there's an amazing list that you can find of like how specific all of these movies that they just took plot points and names and moments and scenes and uh, and, and they're pretty transparent about like yeah. what they were taking from and which Ford movies hit, hit them. Yeah, and the idea was is that let's make a Western that is instantly iconic, right? That you see it and you get the sense of nostalgia for a different age that we're trying to evoke. And we're going to accomplish this by showing you scenes from movies that theoretically you you already love. A pastiche of moments that you have a emotional recognition of. And well, can I jump in there really yeah, quickly? Just yeah, jump jump in. Uh, a little bit more background on uh, Bertolucci and Argento. Uh, at this time, Argento wasn't even a director. He was a, just a, a film critic. And Bertolucci was working in film production, but um, he the, – the, 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 basically the way that Christopher Frayling and Bertolucci uh, categorize it is that – Italy is like a, a Russian boom kind of culture where um, they – everybody uh, – Everybody makes a a big sword and sandal movie, right? Italy is like shit that makes money. They make a yeah. million sword and sandal movies, and then Cleopatra and a few other big, big, big flops happen. Uh, oh, 
Oh, no more, no, no more uh, Sword and Santa movies, no more Peplon movies. Okay. Uh, and then the industry essentially goes dormant until outside funding comes in because Italy is a smaller country. It doesn't have the funding of the distribution channels and all the, the, the fucking structure and bones that, that American uh, American distribution has. Um, so then uh, Leone essentially kicks off another one of these booms with spaghetti westerns and, and like you said i think it's something like the, like 1500 or 1800 of them got made 500 uh, but, uh but only no i think it was like i think it was like 1500 and then like 500 made it to america or something right no 500 you're i always do this too that like 1500 films is an insane amount of films <laughs> like um like america produces about 250 even with independent releases or some 300 or something each year like they, it was 500 total and about 60 to 70 ever made it to america oh, okay cool so yeah about 500 total made it uh to it made it ever through production and then you know 60 or 70 made it to america um and uh, uh at this time like bertolucci and, and argento were trying to figure out kind of like what how to make their mark and they were just appreciative of our of, our, of uh love leone who was had helped kickstart this industry so yeah. it was like we think of Bertolucci and Argento as these massive names but at, at this time you should be thinking about Leone as the big name and these guys as like um uh young upstarts they're trying to, they're trying to kick off their career like Ber- Bertolucci and Argento have not made their big mark yet and Argento isn't even like he's only sort of parlaying into film production yeah uh yeah it you're and the thing that they all have in common is that uh, Italians know how to title shit. So, like, <laughs> I fucking loved. I fucking love all month. We've just been texting a, a, a spaghetti western titles to each other. <laughs> so they're so good, and it it was something where it took like a week to go. Like, oh yeah, these are the same types of titles uh, as something else that Peter and I do during every Spooktober, which is texting each other amazing uh, Giallo titles uh, <laughs> of Italian horror, horror films. Or like yeah. reference like, this has three titles! You gotta, you gotta hear what all three of these are. Like, um, I am a worm and you are a golden bird. <laughs> yeah. And I must fly. And I must um, fly! <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, 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 so it, that's what he was able to do, right? So Clint Eastwood said no. Um, so he gets Charles Bronson um, pl- playing a uh, Mexican. Uh, Which you uh, don't find out until like the end of the movie. What's, uh, apparently people really – yeah. Uh, uh, I, I forgot this. It's been a while since I've seen The Magnificent Seven, but I guess he plays a, a Mexican in that too. Um, it's also they used to cast – I mean he's Lithuanian uh, of Lithuanian heritage. They used to also cast Greek guys as yeah. Mexicans. One of my favorite – one of my favorite film noirs, Kiss Me Deadly, has oh, uh, yeah. like <laughs> it's like a he's like an Italian or a Greek guy, but he's clearly supposed to be this like Mexican mechanic. And you're just watching, you're like, so what accent are you going for there, bud? <laughs> <laughs> oh, give me those pesos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, essentially, you have this movie that is that is designed to evoke moments. And Leone kind of is also saying, you know what? I've just done the, the hyper-violence stuff so much. I'm actually more interested in spending more time on the moments surrounding violence. Like, what is the – what is the process occurring in 
uh, very specific detail before an eruption of violence occurs. And he was getting there with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, the bad, and the ugly has a long stretch of the last gunfight is a really good example of just every little moment before a sudden eruption of violence. So this wasn't necessarily outside of what Leone had been doing his entire career. What he is doing differently is that the violence itself is less spectacular and more muted in its realism, right? Like the even the violent moments, like you don't see the Clint Eastwood thing that we've been talking about all month of like Clint Eastwood pulling out his gun hyper fast, impossibly fast, and then five people getting shot and going to the ground in this like kinetic – with a kinetic force. Instead, you see like someone lumber through uh, a train while the camera is close to the ground and then just dead bodies everywhere recognizing this scene of horrific violence <clears throat> like happened and you see the aftermath of it without all the cool shit that happens even the the final uh, uh showdown is less about um having just an amazing moment where the audience wants to stand up and cheer and more about really drilling home the uh the emotional catharsis and importance of the moment which is just different than the rest of yeah. his movies and so exactly. and also seeking to deny you the easy thrills of the previous movies and like yeah i'm glad you highlighted the final moment because the final moment is like the flashback is the bullet like yeah the 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 villain's realization that of what he did to this person um it comes at the same time that the bullet comes. Truth is a bullet here. Yeah. And like that's the, that's that's why it's so much about the death of the West is because like <laughs> the truth is startling for these people. It's painful. It's brutal. Even the worst people have these moments of like, oh, I did that. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. No one is uh, – no one is necessarily like, – there's a lot of like reckoning with morality that doesn't – just doesn't happen in the other movies. Like the only moment is really the the Civil War, like what a waste of human life moment that occurs in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And – or like Clint Eastwood seeing um, the, 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 the girlfriend and her daughter that he wants to help escape. Um, or or other little moments of like a little bit of altruism or recognition of comment of wasted humanity, right? And, and before More like in Fistful, that that his plan helped get all the Baxters killed, right? Like that's that's a that's a little bit of it too, but like nothing. That's just a quick look. That's in a speech. And this you get like you get like depressed speeches. <laughs> uh yeah, and it nothing seems like. Like the end of the movie, no one seems all that joyful, right? There's no sense of triumph. Like you think about the ending of the la- of the last three movies, they all end in moments of triumph, right? A lot of times with like people with literal gold or sacks of money around their shoulder, and even if like vengeance was served and justice, like uh, you know, uh, meted out, it's it's not something that like. The, that there's like a cost or a morality that anyone has to dwell on, right? It's like that guy was a dick. Like he, the, he, he, he was so uh, he sexually assaulted that woman so hard that she killed herself. Mid sexual assault. Anyway, here's my money. See you later, old man. Like you know, it, uh, that's a triumphant moment in the movie. And here, everything is just like peppered by a cost that. Um, 
a cost that everyone feels is uh, brutal but necessary. Frank and the other villains in this movie feel like the cost is the only way for them to flourish in an era that doesn't want them. And <coughs> Cheyenne and uh, Harmonica see it as a cost that they need to meet out to make sure the future is protected for the rest of everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you mentioned the the ending um, and, and, and the way that like um, – it feels very sad, very resigned. Um, but Jill gets to come out on top. Like you have, I have to, I have to kind of give Bertolucci and Argento the credit here because it sounds like they were greatly, re- they were greatly pushing on, or at least Bertolucci takes credit for this, greatly pushing on Leone to um, not only make Jill the central character of this movie, and she is like, yeah, absolutely. Um, essentially, Bronson and and for the effect, better effect of the movie, Bronson acts as this avenging angel, this like maybe even literally dead man who's coming back from from the grave to haunt Frank, um, Henry Fonda's character for all of his awful sins, and Jason Robards is just sort of um, a chaos element. He's he's as close as a corollary as they can get to the ugly, right? Um, and uh, just to park here really quickly in an asterisk, there's a bunch of casting rumors about what they wanted to do with this movie and use actors from previous movies. There's a rumor that maybe Leone reached out to Eastwood um, for hopes that Eastwood, you know, if, if you won't star in the movie, you can show up at the beginning with Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach as uh, these three weirdos oh, yeah. that are just killing time as the hitmen uh, and then die after 10 minutes. You can meet Italy really quickly. And Clint Eastwood was like, Absolutely not. So that's that's an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's actually true, but the one that is true is that Eli. They tried to cast Eli Wallach as Jason Robards' character, yeah. um, <laughs> Cheyenne, who, by the way, uh, and you can't tell in the movie because this is but this is all from the script. Cheyenne is also supposed to be Mexican. Um, <laughs> it's like. But, like, you can't really tell, so it's not a thing, like, whereas, like, with Bronson, it's, like, it's text. Like, they show Bronson as a young boy, and it's it's an it's a Mexican actor. Jason Robards is just sort of a, a wild element, right? Um, and and uh, Jill is like the ballast. She's the one with a future. She's the one that's fighting for a dream and will do anything to survive and will fight for fight for uh, who who she thinks she is now. Now that she's left New Orleans, she's stopped being a sex worker because she didn't think it was you know that was her path. Um, and and Le- it sounds like Leone wanted to sexualize her way more, and then like Bertolucci talked her out of it, and then Leone ended up casting one of his friends, Claudia uh, Claudia Cardinale, um, and that helped guide this crazy production because the script was over four hundred pages. Yeah, and <laughs> between- and like, but still eight lines of dialogue. It was like <laughs> the man stares at the other man, but longer. Even longer. <laughs> he kicks his boot. Yeah, what they forget is that the, the shootout on the train was uh, 300 pages long. Um, <laughs> he just kept holding out money. <laughs> <laughs> I got some in this drawer. I got some in this drawer. <laughs> but the, Stuff, the, Morton's the fucking dumbest. Like, can you imagine me? Like, here's Frank, a murderous killer. He's like, I got all this cold hard cash. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all he has, right? He doesn't have his health, he doesn't have a future, all he has is a a plan and money. He's literally spineless. Yeah, he's literally. Um, But it sounds like Bertolucci convinced Leone to to make a woman the main character. Leone cast uh, someone that he had a lot of respect for, Claudia Cardinale. Um, 
And uh, from there, I mean, like the the production really set off. Uh, they 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 started casting uh, these other big name Hollywood actors. And like, I I want to just like finish on this thought for me is like, this feels like Leone got to play with the big American studio money. And he got a full fucking plate to just do whatever he wanted. As long as the actors said yes, <laughs> uh, he got to do whatever he wanted. He brought in fucking red sand from Monument Valley so that when he shot in Spain, certain scenes yeah. would look redder. Like <laughs> that's, This is Leone playing with all these cards. And yet he doesn't choose to make... Good and Bad, The Ugly, Part 2. He doesn't choose to make, you know, I'm going to make something that's even bigger than the, the Civil War. I'm going to make, my, finally, my Mexican Revolution movie, and it's going to be huge. He doesn't make I'm going to make this about space. <laughs> space weapons. Yeah, the astronaut with no name. Um, <laughs> um, just call me Buzz. Um, the Just call me Michael Collins. <laughs> I might as well have no name, considering I'm left out of the history book. <laughs> so I'm Michael Collins. Now I have a name of famous Irish revolutionary. God. I turned man in thousand space to moon first time. Poor Michael Jesus. Collins. Both of them. Poor Michael Collins. Mikey, as I call him. Mikey. We're bros. Um, Dear Mikey, yeah. here he said he went to the moon. He didn't go to the moon, Mikey. <laughs> he didn't go to the moon, Mikey. He saw the moon. I've seen the moon. <laughs> I, he saw the man in the moon. He said, "Look, it's me." Like, no, I'm looking at you right now. And he's like, "Are you?" And then he slowly backs up into a hedgerow. <laughs> um, do you think, like, yeah, when Michael Collins like went home, his mom was like, "I'm sure, I'm sure the Aldrin moms, the Armstrong moms, they have a they have a son to be proud of. You, you could have been a doctor." You're at minimum the second Michael Collins that shows up on Wikipedia after that Liam Neeson movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're in a movie, and we don't even know who plays you, but everyone knows who plays Michael Collins, the other one. <laughs> a guy that wouldn't leave Michael Douglas alone. <laughs> That's who plays Michael Collins in a movie. Yeah. What were you saying? Uh, I was saying that uh, that this was this is Leone playing with big Hollywood money. He built these massive sets. Massive sweeping sets. He got to shoot, uh, you know, bi-continental. And he chose instead, instead of just upping the scale of good and bad and the ugly and saying, I'm going to make my big Mexican revolutionary picture, this big, something that's bigger than, you know, the the Civil War battle I showed. um, He said, no, I'm going to make something that's more reflective. It's more mature. Um, and that's what's so funny about Ducky Sucker because Ducky Sucker feels like it's it's a it's a retreat until it wow. gets to about the two thirds point, and then it's just as sad as this movie. But this movie is like sad, reflective, mature from Ducky Sucker angry immediately. Sad. Yeah, Ducky Sucker is he's almost like angry that he uh, is returning to this field, and he's like, I'm going to show well, you exactly how miserable these Mexican Revolution uh, battles were. So I think that actually, though, reflects, right? Like, he did make a work that was more mature, and he made a work that ultimately, even though I still give the the edge by quite a bit to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is one of my, like, ten favorite films of all time, like, th- his his gamble on having all the resources, all the support, most of the actors that he wanted, an iconic actor playing against type, and the movie was a resounding uh, failure. <laughs> Uh, it, uh, the Paramount didn't know what to do with it. They cut 23 minutes off it, 
which is why it's only in the DVD era that most of us have seen the actual full cut, which is the 168-minute version they released. And they call that the restored cut, but in reality, there's cuts floating around Europe for France, Italy, and other markets that are much longer, but they just never never ADR'd the lines for uh, English. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, uh, it got cut to shit. Um... Critics were pretty lukewarm on it. Even Ebert, who is like was a huge Leone fan to that point, gave it two and a half stars in his review from 1968, and he was like, "Yeah, this is seems like this has been done before." Um, it made it difficult for him to move on from westerns, where Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was this amazing hit, and he was getting offered a lot of stuff. Uh, he wanted to make what became Once Upon a Time in America. Couldn't get funding for it because of this movie and instead had to uh, retreat to a Western where he made his saddest, angriest (laughs) movie that is uh, not fun, uh, but a a fantastic movie, A Fistful of Dynamite or Ducky Sucker. And then finally, finally, after fighting for, you know, 12 more years, gets to make his gangster epic that also gets cut to shit and everyone hates up until the last five to six years. So... In some ways, this movie that is, you know, in many cases considered the best Western of all time, it was on Time 100's greatest films of all time, is one of those things that earned that reputation, unfortunately, in retrospect, which is uh, is likely cold comfort to a – even if Leona had survived um, uh, long enough to see that become the case – uh, which my guess is there was some of that a little bit uh, over between 1968 when he died, I think, in 1987. But it still is like, you know, oh, success in retrospect, which uh, I'm sure most artists are kind of like, great. No, I'm glad people found it. It would have been nice if it was just success in spect. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, that's sort of the John Carpenter approach yeah. to this is like, yeah, like I – um. I'm I'm really glad that you like the movie now. Um, can can we get money for that? Can yeah. I cash in your good review? Uh-huh. Oh, cool! I made one of the hundred greatest movies of all time. Uh, would have been nice if they would have let me made more after. Yeah, that. and uh, uh, and Le- uh, Leone did get appreciation for this uh, eventually from you know the art house crowd. Like apparently in Paris, this played. Uh, oh yeah, for- Europe. This was a huge hit. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, but it just didn't blow up. It didn't blow up in Japan and America and shit the way that, like, the previous three movies had. Well, and it's such a – we talked a little bit about this. Like, it is such a – it is about American Westerns directed at an American audience, right? His um, – the, the the Man With No Name trilogy is an Ita- are Italian Westerns through and through from that era, spaghetti Westerns that are um, – taking the American mythos and doing something different with it. And this is him going and saying, I'm going to make an American Westerns for an American audience with an Amer- with a most, with a more American cast um, uh, about Americans love of these Western tropes. And America went, yeah, I'm, no, thank you. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that you like, you know, that, that had to have felt a little bit, a little bit shitty. Um, even if, like, I get it, like, you 
there was a the, apparently like there's a projector who they would they would show this over and over and over again and he would complain to Leone about how boring his movie was and like you know when you're following something as instantly iconic an instant classic and one of the best examples of the genre and you know to your point not making good the band the ugly too which was probably 100% the right decision for a variety of reasons this still comes out the year after that and how could you I, – I can imagine – I, I referenced this at the beginning. This is a masterpiece and I love this movie. It's a come down from what The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and the other two movies are doing. And uh, it, it would be easy to see, I think, in some cases that, oh, that's not what I wanted to, to watch in that particular movie. And that's a little bit disappointing. Uh, let's quickly talk about the casting of Henry Fonda. I mean, let's get oh, to the movie. Oh man, what a what a, a what a fucking coup! Like Henry Fonda, he courted Henry Fonda for years to to, to get him into Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more and Good Man the Ugly to like as he's as uh you know Leone both uh, on a personal side you know because he loves American westerns and on a, a fiscal side because he knows uh big uh, American names sell better right um, yeah he's he's trying to he's trying to pursue these these big American names uh hard Henry Fonda keeps going no 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 and apparently what apocryphally or I watched an interview with Henry Fonda and he he cites this as the reason why um and Eli Wallach also said in his autobiography um well, he was I friends with Eli Wallach. And he, Eli Wallach said, "Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I was talking to Henry Fonda. He mentioned this movie, and I said, uh, yeah, you'll love Leone. Go over there. Do whatever he says. You'll love Leone, which is also very funny because, as we discussed last week, Eli Wallach had what sounds like a series of close calls with death on that set. Um, uh, yeah, thank God he didn't call Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> and since we're not talking about ducky sucker unfortunately because months only we will someday weeks. um we uh apparently yeah, we, did, we did collision course instead we, it was yeah, we did, it, it was a five week month but we yeah only had so many rooms for so many uh stone cold uh, classics stone cold classics interesting takes on uh racial identity god um but James uh, James Coburn apparently uh, reached out to Henry Fonda and he's like, what's it like working with this guy? And Henry Fonda passed on the word. He was like, you have to work with Leone. He's a, he's a genius. He's a master for for Ducky Sucker, a.k.a. Fistful of Dynamite. So um, that's that, that's at least where that's where at least where Henry Fonda had a, a conversion moment was because uh, yeah. he talked to some people actually that he knew and trusted and were like, fine, I'll fly to fucking Italy. And then they're well, like, well, you're actually flying to Spain. Uh-huh. <laughs> But everyone's going to speak uh, Italian, if that helps. Uh, well, and he worked with him again, right? My Name is Nobody, which is like the unofficial seventh film or eighth film by this by Leone, which uh, is the is his kind of uh, – as as parody Italian westerns or parody Spanish westerns, like uh, they call me Trinity, start more outright comedy movies, start, start becoming hits. Um, Leone produces and writes and directs half of My Name is Nobody, which is a very good movie, and Fonda is uh, one of the stars in that, too. Uh, so apparently, though, the convincing came because Leone uh, described the opening scene of this movie, essentially, with Frank, which is, picture this, you know, uh, there is a kid, there's all this family, daughters, 
dad lying dead and his kid comes out and all of a sudden a gun comes up and shoots the kid dead and the camera pans up and who did that shooting but henry fonda like that blue eyes oh yeah like that would blow everyone's minds. Henry Fonda had been almost exclusively a good guy. And also one of our most iconic American good guys, right? He's fucking in Grapes of Wrath and To Kill Him, or not To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, very, very specifically not To Kill a Mockingbird. Grapes of Wrath is what I was thinking of. And My Darling Clementine and the Oxbow Incident. And, you know, he is like a trusted... 12 Angry Men is the other one I'm thinking of. You know, 12 Angry Men where he's arguing for justice and, and all this kind of stuff. And the idea that, like, not only do we have him as a villain in our movie, but a villain who's introduced by shooting a child. Um, what what could be more interesting in your career at this point to do that? And Fonda agreed. Uh, and then Paramount it's, gave him a bunch of money. I feel like you can't draw enough of a clear line between uh you know uh leone stunt casting henry fonda to try and take advantage of his his reputation uh, and the fact that his stardom was waning somewhat um and the fact that um (laughs) and the fact that quentin tarantino in the 90s a couple decades later would start casting um you know john travolta and you know robert forster these these sort of like guys who he was like okay a certain subset of his audience is going to recognize these guys from their old roles and i'm going to try and subvert what you expect out of this actor um and get a really great performance from this actor that i grew up loving um like you can't draw a clear enough line between the two yeah, I mean, that could have been an accident. I don't know if Tarantino's even heard of Leone. Maybe he <laughs> doesn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Does he like Western? The, I, I feel like I, I know he'd a lot. be so sick of cleaning up the horse shit and all that, you know? I know a lot about Tarantino. The two things I'm unclear on is, does he like Westerns or Japanese movies? <laughs> Up in the air. He mostly talks about the films like Ordinary People. Uh <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah I think that's a good segue so yeah the opening scene has Henry Fonda shoot a kid do you want to talk more about Once Upon a Time in the West Uh, I'll give a yeehaw to that yeehaw yeehaw is that all Give me some alternate draw. Lines. Oh jeez, you got me. Oh jeez, too fast. Hey, and guess what? Draw. Oh, I dropped it. Ah, oh, I shot my penis. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot your hat six times. <laughs> he does that same gag in My Name Is Nobody too, where he just keeps shooting hats. Leonie's like, shoot those hats. He, he hates hands. Does, this man, this man hates these hats. <laughs> Get away from the hats. 
Because he does it, and obviously uh, for a few dollars more, and then that's Clint Eastwood's like go-to distraction in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and then he basically does the the hat fight again in <laughs> My Name is Nobody. He's like, people, my least successful movie, Once, Once Upon a Time in the West, had no hat shooting. <laughs> Why are, like, I understand that like Musical May is going to be great. But I would just love to do another four weeks of Ducky Sucker, Once Upon a Time in America, and, uh, you know, My Name is Nobody, and something, something else. Colossus of Rhodes. No. <laughs> my, my indulgence will be Once Upon a Time in America, a movie that I think is uh, longer than all of our episodes combined. <laughs> uh, I still, that's, I, I've never seen that one. I watched it. Uh, I watched it in high school uh, when I was like obsessed, obsessed throughout with all four years. And I watched it for on a sick day. Yeah, and like I don't think day. I've had a. I don't think I've had a free uh, a free time window like that since since high school. I still remember the first time I finally got around to watching Seven Samurai after putting it off for a long time because that's another like four and a half hour movie or whatever. And like I literally was like I had the whole day by myself. I forget the reason, and I'm like, I mean, I could, you know, go on a walk, build a boat, go on a vacation. Got to build that family boat. Mow my lawn, watch eight other movies. (laughs) God. Beat Final Fantasy X and (laughs) XI. Or I guess this is a good day to finally watch Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai is great. Incorporate your business. Incorporate my business, do my taxes for the next five years, you know, that thing where you prepay in for next year for some fucking insane reason if you get a refund. Well, then we don't have to worry about next year. Yeah, well, just pay, just do whatever next year. Why would you prepay? Uh, um, yeah, I, but I, I watch Seven Seven Ryan, it's good. But you don't get those days that often where it's like build a boat. Not a good, not a. Like, not a very seaworthy boat, but, I mean, all you need to build a boat, Peter, is things that can float. Um, You're floating my boat right now by talking about Leone. Uh, we so all you... float down here. So. <laughs> we all float down here, partner. I, I built my boat out of dead kids from Maine. <laughs> 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 N- notoriously uh you know uh, uh balloon-like children there very gaseous <laughs> biggest t- biggest expense flying a main <laughs> once you're there it's easy most gassy kids east of the mississippi uh yeah so i guess the alternate tagline is draw um oh all of america like canada too <laughs> I had the quick and the possibly already dead. <laughs> Stop! You read one internet fan theory. You're making no, a whole I episode about it. I came up with that one on my own, and then like a a knighted film critic, Christopher Sir Christopher Frailing, discussed it in an interview. It's like, okay, I wasn't just you know, I wasn't just uh you know, uh, internet poisoned. I uh, the last uh, one thing I want to say about the title of this movie. I do love that this movie. I got something to say. <laughs> I got something to say. I I know moments ago I wasn't sure if Tarantino liked westerns, let alone had heard of this movie. But I do love that the titling of this movie fucking broke 
Quentin Tarantino's brain for decades. He tries to name his movies or his friends' movies after this. I remember when um, there was a there was an interview I saw about uh, Robert Rodriguez calling Tarantino to say he was thinking about making a sequel to Desperado, and Tarantino is like, "Yeah, oh, you gotta do it, you gotta do it." And then you make it like really well, and you call it Once Upon a Time Mexico. <laughs> like that was like the interview I saw with him. Like just like yeah, just. just and then, like, he was for a long time going to name Inglorious Bastards Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. And instead Which is named, a great title. Yeah, it is. Much he, better than Inglorious Bastards. But he then – so he just names a chapter that because it's divided into sections. And then he finally gets to name a movie Once Upon a Time in something uh, with Hollywood. But, like, I just – can you imagine, like, just going 30 years? Like, I, I gotta title this. I gotta do this. This is what I gotta title stuff. Like, <laughs> why do you care so much about this being the title? I don't – I don't know. Um. Yeah, he, he spent he spent uh, decades trying to pay uh, homage, uh, as, they, as it were. Um, and he picked his Leone. worst movie to do it. And – some of it is rather surface level, right? Like, he's just yeah. like, I'm just going to steal Morricone songs. Yeah. Um, and and some of it is, like, quite deep, uh, dorky references, like, especially by the time we get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, a lot of his, like, dork references to, um, to like, Corbucci and shit. Like, yeah. that's all just, like, uh, Tarantino um, basically being like, huh. What if I turn one of my podcast rants into a movie? <laughs> it is sort of funny that he was uh, – he played tribute to Corbucci before he did uh, Leone, like, in a, in a in movie title because he got Jane Go Unchained before uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And as I just said, but I was kind of over-talking, so I don't know. And Tarantino's movies, the, the Corbucci is loose. Oh yeah, that 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 features Clint Eastwood heavily. <laughs> um, but he uh, he picked his worst movie to honor Leone. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, I'm including Death Proof. And <laughs> fuck it, his segment in Four Rooms too. Uh, yeah, I'm on. I'm on. I think we're on a very lonely island, but we're, we're, we're that's good. There. You know how you get off a lonely island? On a boat. On a boat. Yes. Well, it comes back around. Uh, so, what is the plot to Once Upon a Time in the West? Uh, we are on a homestead. <laughs> are you feeling it? Are you feeling the vibes? Yeah. Are you picturing Tubbleweed? I'm Mr. Ed. <laughs> are you picturing a talking horse? Because there's no talking horse in this movie. All horse Kill the talk. horse. Kill the horse. Of course, of course. <laughs> Kill the talking horse, of course. <laughs> what if at the, the end eyes, of, of course what if at the end of this movie everything happens the same but then Jill looks at her horse and goes and the horse goes what a day <laughs> <laughs> that would be really Leone killing the western right <laughs> like like he fully goes from like uh like deeply melancholy tragic moment of of you know so somebody gets revenge for a long a long caused uh curse but you know they their life can never move on from that moment of trauma and then all of a sudden a talking horse is like i'll sure love peanut butter <laughs> i'm gonna miss harmonica <laughs> <laughs> you guys should have got married you guys think about getting married you're kind of alone here Kind of a sad ending for you. Well, I'm just a horse. What do I know? 
<laughs> I would love just I make a sad epic and then like oh, I don't know dog and horse at the end maybe <laughs> that was Argento <laughs> blame it on Argento uh, that would be amazing to have a movie where at the end of the movie movie that would be like a Von Trier movie at the end of the movie just the main character has gone irrevocably insane and is just talking to an animal at the end <laughs> I guess chaos really did rain <laughs> just well, that, you know, I don't think you need to go like an insane character because that probably could still like lean into the darkness. Like just the idea of like, wait, horses can talk? Yep, no one's ever asked us before, but <laughs> in, this, in this movie universe, everything's the same except horses can talk. <laughs> First time a horse has been in a scene for that long. So, I mean, I mean it would have come up earlier if horses had been around. <laughs> Horse talk all the time if they can uh, get it edgewise in between all the hay. This movie's about the death of the West, about how uh, bloodshed needs to uh, needs to change hands in order for civilization to progress. And what if horses could talk? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Paramount gave me a lot of freedom. Is what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah. What we needed was Doolittle meets the Wild Bunch. <laughs> I'm mostly influenced by. <laughs> I'm mostly influenced by John Ford, but there's one moment that I'm heavily influenced by a sitcom about a talking horse named Mr. <laughs> <laughs> you're just convinced that that Mr. Ed is catch, a John Ford movie. See if you can catch which one is drawn from Mr. Ed as opposed to John Ford movies. <laughs> he blends his influences so subtly that it's hard to tell. Uh, but I feel like the clearer delineation is the moment when uh, the horse says, Hey, is for horses. And that's for me. <laughs> Oh, I hope this railroad doesn't put my me out of business. <laughs> I'm a horse. I was the primary means of transportation. <laughs> what the hell is that? Some sort of me-less carriage? <laughs> oh yeah, how many miles per me? <laughs> how much me power does this train have? <laughs> Man, that guy's got a cock as big as a me. <laughs> Henry Fonda made us put that in the script. It was <laughs> I wouldn't do it for the other movies that I offered him, but I'm like, I guess we'll have a talking horse, and we can say your dick is bigger. Henry Fonda. <laughs> There's a scene where Frank, played by played by Henry Fonda, is having uh what could only, with the most elastic of definitions, be considered consensual sex with uh, Jill. Um, and there, and his pillow talk is all about. Oh, man, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to kill you so good. I'm um, debating whether to marry you or kill you. <laughs> or marry you and kill you. And then just through the window, the horse pops his head and is like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> hey, hey, what happened? <laughs> hey, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I definitely think ideally there's talking horse for one scene and he only does Fred Willard's catchphrase from Almighty Wind. <laughs> Okay, in a universe where Mr. Ed exists and uh, Fred Willard's sitcom exists, 
And yeah, Which, and Leone could see the future to one specific moment in one specific movie only. <laughs> if there's infinite universes, all I'm saying is this is a possibility. Yeah, I, this has to be at least one, right? A universe where once upon a time in the West is the exact same, except right after Henry Fonda... Uh, have sex. Uh, <laughs> a horse. I think we a horse bumps in and says the catchphrase from Fred Willard's uh, character in a Mighty Wind, which is "Hey, what happened?" Um, <laughs> and the only reason that was able to be done is because Sergio, Sergio Leone was a huge Mr. Ed fan and had a premonition about um, the movie A Mighty Wind from uh, 2003, directed by Christopher Guest. Yep. Yeah. That's. I mean. If you believe in quantum theory, you have to believe that universe exists with no other changes. <laughs> you have to. Accept my premise. All the weaklings were just pretending to believe in quantum, the, the many universe theory just walked out. And I'm glad <laughs> because if you're not on board for that universe, you don't really believe in the many universe theory. Stop citing Stephen King shit in a universe where people like you. Like, yeah, everyone could believe in those. But can you believe in the talking course that was added to Once Upon a Time in the West to fulfill a permonition <laughs> that Sergio Leone had about Fred Willard's character in A Mighty Wind? Because if you yeah. can't buy that, get off the ship. Yeah, I'm going to need you to take off your cool steampunk goggles. Put down your cool steampunk iPhone case. And just pay attention right here, buddy. There's only one other alternative universe. It's a one where there's a horse and once upon a time in the West who quotes Fred Willard in A Mighty Wind. And he also sometimes says, I love to watch. <laughs> and of course, then with, uh, you know, butterfly effect causation, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> A mighty the horse farted, not planned, but just horses fart sometimes, and that's where the mighty wind name came from. <laughs> wow, it's all came end, back. Do you, end, do you want to end the episode here? Yeah. Um. So next week we're going to be doing musical May, but not musical Hay, <laughs> the only movie that exists in this, which universe. is four horses. <laughs> Uh, what happens so, in this movie besides specifically in this universe not the horse jumping back in order for me to continue i'm going to need you to shoot that talking horse right in the head thank you Yay! i was <laughs> robbed of us no one wanted to pay more than scale for a talking role i couldn't have at least gone out with that cool gun from no country for old man well, that was a cow shooter <laughs> Yeah, actually, that would be kind of offensive to use on a, on a horse. Do you think it's offensive or an honor? <laughs> I think horses look at cows and they're like, Jesus, just sitting around chewing cud all day. I don't know what cud is, but quit chewing it. I think horses chew cud. They, you look at them, they chew. That's how they got Mr. Ed to talk, right? Uh, they butter. put peanut butter in his mouth, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Because all the cows kept chewing up all the cud. Uh, yeah. Yeah, please yeah. just uh, just you know what? Don't even try to transition. Just just say the plot as quickly as possible, and maybe we'll get serious again. <laughs> so we're on a uh, American homestead, the McBain family. Uh, actually, sorry, let me step back. Um, we open on a train station. Um, three goofs are just killing time, waiting for someone to arrive. Uh, they harass the station attendant, and they kind of they kind of just kill time for a while until the. 
uh, person gets off the train, um, shoots them all dead, but one of them lands uh, pretty, what looks like a pretty serious blow in or around the heart of uh, this person. Then we watch that person get up. We cut to the McBain homestead, um, which is off in uh, Sweetwater, which is uh, away from uh, Flagstaff, the main town. Uh, this uh, this man, uh, McBain, is McBain. <laughs> we can't go down. The goggles do nothing. <laughs> we can't do. <laughs> yeah, we can't do uh, any Simpsons riffs at all on that. Sorry, we just do not have time. Got time. Uh, McBain, uh, abusive to his children, but it is apparently in other ways an idyllic sort of uh, homestead. McBain has big dreams for this homestead and the future of Sweetwater. However, gunfire rings out from the the bushes and the whole family is slaughtered, uh, including uh, three children. Um, we see that the perpetrator is a blonde, uh, blonde eyed, <laughs> that'd be terrifying, uh, a blue eyed uh, Henry Fonda, uh, who we don't know his name yet. Uh, but people in town start associating this horrific crime with a character named well, Hold on, Hold on. We know his name because... Uh, what's his name? The the goofy suspenders guy says wobbly says, what should we do with him, Frank? And he goes, well, now that you said my name. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You're right. Um, so uh, Frank is a merciless killer and is the fifth. His family hold for- on. The fifth lead in this movie is named Wobbly. <laughs> <laughs> is Wobbly the one that has suspenders and a belt? Yeah. Um, what does he say later? He's like, how can I trust a man who can't even trust his own trousers? Yeah, trust his own <laughs> pants. Yeah, great line. That's good. Also, the fact that Leone Bertolucci, probably, Leone or Bertolucci wrote that line and they were both um, men of carriage uh, just makes the line funnier. Uh, um, well, it's actually a specific. Uh, so Leone uh, used to think how silly it was that uh, everyone in John Ford movies wore suspenders. So. It was a uh, kind of a specific. Oh, that's uh, funny. Dig, yeah. I didn't catch that callback. Um, but anyways, back in town, Jill arrives. Jill is uh, the uh, wife of McBain, um, and she's set to inherit this farm. And uh, of course, she doesn't realize that before she arrives. Um, yeah. She's set yeah, to. Everyone's, uh, everyone's like, "What happened to your husband?" She's like, "The goggles did nothing." <laughs> Last one, I promise. <laughs> God. Um, so she goes to the family farm. She discovers a slaughter has happened, and she begins to get her accounts in order to basically go back home. We did begin to discover a little bit more of her background as the movie goes on, but I'll park here for, for Jill. Um, Jill was a sex worker in New Orleans, a very famous sex worker. Um, and it sounds like Big Bane was visiting on some sort of business yeah. or whatever, and uh, who is a widow, uh, widower, widower. Um he uh, met her. They fell in love uh, to some capacity, and he offered her a new life uh, out on the range um, as the matriarch of this this family. And it, it's it's hard to tell how much of the dream he shared with her. It sounds like no specifics, but just that um, you know, someday my 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 ticket's gonna come in, which is you know that's the well. He must dream. have shared like he he must have shared the the train station. I I agree. It's a little confusing because. When she realizes what the sign was supposed to say, she remembers him showing her a model of the train station, but then seems to not understand the train station part of it. Because so I, I think he was hinting at what at what how his ticket was going to come in, but he kept his cards close to his chest until yeah. she arrived. Um, which you know, like that, that's that's you know that's that's fine. I think he didn't assume he was going to be slaughtered mercilessly before then. Um, this is uh, Jill comes back to town. She starts getting her affairs in order to either find 
money on the the you know the family ranch before she sells it you know like there's there's might be some coinage hiding somewhere because he has sort of hinted that you know he's gonna come into a bunch of money or uh that the the family is already uh you know uh profitous um and uh jill uh starts uh uh, the 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 process of selling the farm and and untangling herself of that and maybe going back home, but at the same time is still trying to you know lay claim to her stake here as best as she can because it sounds like she was actually in love with, um, yeah. with her her husband no matter how short their 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 courtship was well, right. Well, there's that great scene with Cheyenne comes uh, like an hour into the movie when she's kind of cleaning up the mess. Uh, after she like arrives on the farm to see everyone dead and, and not knowing what to do, and Cheyenne kind of starts playing kind of jokes because Cheyenne's been kind of accused of this crime and says like, "Honey, you know, get some coffee on the on the thing," and then you know they have this like kind of long emotional conversation, and Cheyenne leaves with a lot of respect for her, and um, you know says, "You know, you 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 truly deserve." Uh, uh, better life and she responds with you're the second man that said that to me <laughs> um, and it's like ooh it just like it hurts so bad like you just recognize that like this wasn't a marriage of convenience or something else this was a marriage of like having a lot of faith in being a part of this family and what what the future could offer with her and McBain together so I think I discussed exactly and I think I discussed last uh, last week about uh, Leone respects, or at least <clears throat> his characters respect, this idea of this game, that uh, that these criminals are criminals, they're uh, eluding the law, they're pulling off cons, they're conning each other, but it's all part of this this, this elaborate game, right? Like, you choose to play the game, and, you know, uh, if you get shot trying to shoot somebody, that's just, you know, it's the cost of the game. Um, and he sort of romanticizes it, and also at times he realizes that there's a cost to that. And he puts it up against the contra- – in contrast, the the violent forces of this country sort of trying to form itself. The Civil mm-hmm. War in that in that case and in this case. Um, the railroads, commerce, grand capitalism, the country uniting itself under not just one flag in terms of, of uh, you know, uh, unity of the nation, but like in terms of capitalism. So – uh, there's a train coming through, and what she is starting to catch on to, and what uh, the 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 villains of the piece, uh, Morton and Frank, yeah. Frank the killer, Morton the money man. Uh, Morton has a terminal illness in his bones um, that is gradually making him more stiff, more incapable of movement. He largely sticks to his his uh, luxurious train with a trellis apparatus. You know, like, he's largely sticking to his luxurious life where he can dole out money. And that's why Frank sticks by him. Frank's a merciless, bloody fucking killer. Uh, who's had a dark, dark past, and we're about to find out more about that. Um, but Frank is Frank murdered that family to help um, uh, enact this plan, wherein uh, this this was a speculative buy. The Sweetwater Ranch it was a speculative buy. McBain looked at some maps, did some prospecting himself, and said, "You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tighten my belt for a bit, but we're uh, we're on the edge of where the railroad is going, and where the railroad is going is where towns are going, where towns are going is where money is going." So he ordered a shit ton of wood to set up a speculative station along the path of where he thought the railroad was going. 
Morton also realizes this information. It's hard to tell if Morton works with the railroad and is maybe like trying to, you know, cut himself his own deal before he dies. Morton's motivation is to reach the Pacific. Morton has a dream of dying on the Pacific, and that's like the one thing he wants to do before he, he dies. Frank, he's a Western man. He just wants he just he just wants his piece of the pie. He wants to keep living. He's only good at one thing. It's living as a Wild West man, and he's ironically trying to uh, profligate the death of the West as fast as possible. Um, so I'm, it, this is very much a character piece. That's why I'm kind of jumping around on the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much about um, Jill is the main character. Harmonica, who I haven't even touched on yet, but I'll get to next. Um, Cheyenne, who's played by Jason Robards. Um, who is uh, sort of just caught in the middle of all this because he's the framed man, but he's also a good killer. So he has some value here. Frank, uh, <laughs> merciless scumbag, one of the worst villains in Western history, right? Um, and then uh, Morton, um, who's sort of a sideline to, to Frank's ultimate will um, because all he is is a man with money. Um, and Frank is a man with, with uh, killing power. And there's sort of a debate in the movie about which one is more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and he, I mean, he hires Frank, but Frank is also, like, not someone that can be necessarily hired, but then, and so Morton realizes that, and then pays all of Frank's men to kill him. Yeah, um, Frank, uh, essentially, well, the, the, the twist, the, the, the twist there is that Frank, um, coerces Jill's involvement. Uh, he says, he, he sleeps with her, which is, um, Judging by the framing uh, and the implication, um, this is not consensual. This is Jill basically electing, I would rather be raped and survive that and keep pushing forward than, um, you know, submit to you. I would rather, I, you know, I've been, I've had horrible, she's implying that she's had horrible sexual assault in her past or, you know, she's had horrible mistreatment by men in the past and like, I came back from that. I'm here today because of all that it's like actually it's weirdly a it's weirdly like a empathetic thing for you know a, a script that started off with leone talking about maybe getting an upskirt shot of the this character jill before he had cast her um and then inevitably uh cut that out um and uh frank basically um coerces her but he's he's hinting at i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, marry you um and we're gonna we're going to get rid of this, this, uh, you know, but we're going to sell this plot to me. Um, so they do a sort of kangaroo auction of the land. The sheriff knows something is up, but the sheriff is, is, is helpless to both the forces of external violence and also capitalism just crushing in on him. And also, you know, Jill's not registering her complaints because she's already been threatened with violence by Frank. So Jill pushes forward um, with the auction until the point that harmonica enters so let's take a step back with harmonica we know nothing about him very much a man with no name type thing but far more of a um enigmatic figure i think than the man with no name um i'm really glad that they ended up casting someone who wasn't eastwood here um because he doesn't have a sexy cool he has a creepy cool like he's yeah i think that's right scary this is like he's like a horror movie vil like him and frank are both like horror movie characters yeah i Man, I I don't know. 
I think Clint Eastwood in the role would have been interesting. I think he could have played it <laughs> yeah. good. Uh, or I mean, Clint, he could you have, have a good argument behind you. There's three movies that Eastwood did that was about him being an awful <clears throat> son of a bitch. Well, Pale but Rider, I, I th- Death, uh, High Plains Drifter, and yeah. Unforgiven. Uh, Pale Rider and High Plains Drifter, both of them, he's sort of playing this character. He's playing a, a, a he's literally a ghost Avenging Pale Rider. Yeah, no, um, and and High Plains Drifter, and High Plains Drifter. I can't yeah. see any interpretation of that movie that doesn't make him a ghost. And Unforgiven, he's not a ghost, but he's a he's a son of a bitch who's trying to make his life better and ends up doing much much more horrible things to continue on. Yeah, so I I, don't, I wouldn't have liked him to be played as the man with no name, but I do think Kevin Clint Eastwood in this movie. I also, I mean, otherwise I could, I think you could make a good case for someone else. I, I don't know, if, like it doesn't sink the movie or or anything even close to it. But I'm not a Charles Bronson fan. And I'm, a, I'm a Bronson fan. I I don't think he's all that good in this movie. He. He seems very disengaged from the material, and I think there's probably an interpretation on that but that there was a lot of intentionality behind that, but disengaged isn't even the right word. It just feels like a very lazy performance, and I always kind of get that from Charles Bronson, and so, like, and not, like, in a way that, like, Clint Eastwood is like, what can I remove from my performance so there's nothing left but, like, a a chomp of the cigar and a and a slight squint of the eyes or something like that it just feels i don't know i i think i it's my every other performance is a plus fantastic and i i i don't think it's bad uh and i know it could be seen as heretical because i know a lot of people really like him in this role um but i i i would rather see eastwood or potentially one of the other guys or like a lee van cleef or something I, I completely disagree. I, 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 and I am a Bronson fan, particularly in this era, because Bronson has like he's, he's been proven like he's already done a bunch of like Great Escape. And he's he's um, coming into the 70s where he's about to do a bunch of amazing genre movies. Like I love you should watch the original mechanic. It's great. Um, he's uh, he's coming into the sort of like exploitation star thing. But he's I think he is. I think he's an actor whose face is is a geography in and of itself. And like we talked yeah. about in one of the previous episodes, um, Leone shoots faces as environments, as geography. It's not just a portrait. It's a portrait of a soul within a face. And I think that Bronson very wisely was cast and scripted like his dialogue is almost nothing um he's very yeah. wisely cast and scripted here um as somebody who's just like this creepy ghost on the periphery he plays the harmonica he does his deal and when the time comes to land a line i think i we might disagree but i i think he lands some of the final lines like uh when uh, frank says um are you gonna tell me what this is all about basically and he's like yeah. only at the point of dying like I think that I think it's an amazing line reading. Yeah, I I want to be clear. Like I am likely in the wrong here. I'm I'm I recognize it is not th- those those ending moments are good, but I recognize it's personal preference and just never really connecting with him as an actor the way a lot of people that I you know respect and really like seem to. Um, I'm actually I'm I'm pulling up quickly. If there's like, I mean, you know how I feel about the Great Escape. I, I feel like it's a good escape at best. <laughs> um, uh, Jubal's good. I've seen that. 
I mean, I, I'm also sort of iffy on the Dirty Dozen. I know both of these things makes you angry. <laughs> oh, I, I love I love Dirty Dozen. I know you do. particularly impressive in that movie. Uh, and then Death Wish 3, which uh, we we did on the show. And then I, I legitimately don't remember him in The Magnificent Seven, but it has been. I haven't seen that since college, maybe. Well, if so. you want a heretical opinion, I'm not a big Magnificent Seven fan. Um, yeah, I never thought it was all that great. It's just kind all. of a – It's. I mean, it's not a bad movie, um, but it's one of those movies where when they remade it, I wasn't like mad. I was just like – Sure. I mean, yeah, it is I mean, a it's remake, a basic right? frame right yeah. framework. It's a it's a thing. People were mad that they were like making this like weirdly diverse casting and they had Chris Pratt in it. And I was like, that, yeah. do you know how they cast the original one? They put yeah, some they put some mostly, hot guys mostly, in there, respected actors. <laughs> yeah, there was David Hyde Pierce as the walking stick, and uh, Dave Foley was the ant. Um. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm I'm a Bronson fan, and what I what I think that really works about his casting here is separate from Eastwood is that Eastwood is the main character of those movies. In this movie, they per- it was the script is purposefully written, or at least the film was edited down to the point that Harmonica is just this figure of vengeance that's sweeping in like a like a a, a, a violent storm. And he doesn't have a whole lot of characterization. He has a bunch of cool shootouts. He has a cool bunch of cool quips, but then he basically comes comes forth at the end of the movie as a, as a uh, a force of truth and a force of justice, and then he disappears. This is Jill's movie. It's been Jill's movie all along. Yeah. In fact, I love Bronson in this movie. Like I could even cut a little bit of Robards and a little bit of Bronson to make it even more of Jill's movie. Let, let because me... Claud- Claudia Cardinale is so good. She is. Um. Yeah. I think. Uh... The scene I really like with uh, – I like the harmonica. Uh, anytime he's arguing with Frank is really good. Um, and I also like uh, – I love that Frank would just shoot him, but Frank's like, what the fuck do you know about me? Like, I love that. Well, the, yeah, it's that idea of, um, you know, a lot of this – and this is like – one of the kind of minor themes of this movie is like who gets to have a public life and who gets to have a private life. Right. Yeah. Um, th- there's people with pseudonyms for names and identities that are hidden. And there's people who, um, you know, Cheyenne, one of those people, he's a criminal. He has to hide his identity. Harmonica's uh, hiding his identity for, for a different reason, which is like he wants to make sure that Frank sees him not as a person that he's wrong until the final moment, but as someone who is basically like his sins come back to haunt him. Um, which is where my guess is all like, like the harmonic is actually a ghost or dead because one of my actual notes is that like harmonic is almost serves purposes like an imaginary friend in the, in the scene where he tells Frank, um, uh, about all the people, all of his men coming to shoot him. Like, check the clock, Frank. What time is it, Frank? And Frank just like shooting stuff. Like, uh, while Harmonica is both not helping but not hurting. Uh, yeah, the only thing I don't like about that scene is that Harmonica shoots one of the men. Oh, I, that's I, pref- right. I would prefer it if Harmonica provided no assistance other than just you know little hints. Like that's one way I would I would clean it up. But that's also that's me uh, trying to gild the lily a little bit on so this, on, this, this on your, on your interpretation. Theory, like, um, I let me ask you one more question. Then let's finish the plot of the movie so we can get into more so some more stuff. So let's forget about Clint Eastwood. Do you prefer <laughs> this with Lee Van Cleef or Charles Bronson? Um, 
man, Lee Van Cleef is just like a cool, mean uncle to me. Like, I love Lee Van Cleef. Like, Escape from New York, it was for a long time my favorite movie before it was yeah. usurped by The Thing. Yeah, he, fa- um, he famously plays New York. <laughs> the city of New York is a character, and that character is played by the actor by Lee, Lee Van, Van Cleef. Cleef. <laughs> Lee Van Cleef, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's sort of a prequel to Carrie Bradshaw playing the city of New York. Um, but anyways. Uh, yeah, Escape I prefer- from New York was my favorite till I saw Escape from L.A. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I prefer... I prefer Charles Bronson in here, and that's um, that's some of that comes down to something that's like kind of not great, which is like the aesthetic of faces, <laughs> and some of that is performance. Like Lee Van Cleef has these like sharp teeth and these like sort of like cool mean uncle vibes, whereas like Charles Bronson, I see a little bit of myself in Charles Bronson, not as a, a creepy a death wish loving conservative because that's not me. Um, but as um, there's a sadness and a reflectiveness and this sort of like beaten dog quality in Charles Bronson that like I can place myself into into his shoes in not every movie, but in um, a lot of his his 60s movies and his his 70s movies before uh, he just kind of needed to make some paychecks. So he became sort of an exploitation star with the, the those police movies and the Death Wish movies. Um, so I would say I would say, yeah, my, my long version of that is Charles Bronson, because like his face, his eyes, he just like hmm. he exudes sadness and melancholy. And like he is kind of like even though Jill is the lead character of this movie, like this movie doesn't quite work without the balance of of, of harmonica, who <laughs> for all intents and purposes, like already seems like a ghost from the moment he enters the frame yeah i don't know i he just i don't need to restate everything but he just seems sort of lazy about everything and i i i don't know it's there's something about it that's not quite working when i think, I think about the i think that, I that think, laziness is intentional too like the fact that he has maybe. a gun sitting in front of him uh, look, instead of in his holster <laughs> like i he's am just not chilling <laughs> i'm not saying that it's not intentional or that it's bad i just I think of the four main characters, six if you include Morton and Wobbly, I think he's just my least favorite like uh, more? character interpretation. But anyways, I don't need to hit that point. Yeah, I, 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 I totally respect him in the minority on it. Um, uh, and yeah. that's fine. I'm wrong. That's why this is my favorite Leone movie. Um, still? Still. Yeah. Hmm. Um... I would say this is kind of a strange place to place this, but this is still my favorite Leone and I'll get to it, you know, final recap kind of stuff. But um, one of the key reasons there is that this is a movie that has higher highs than any of the other movies for me. Um, I don't think the end, the third act is resolved in a particularly satisfying way. Um, but the, just the sheer ambition and scope of this thing and the way it makes me feel, it just like echoes in my soul. And one of those elements is, is Charles Bronson and the score that accompanies Charles Bronson. The piece of music harmonica. Yeah. Good, I think good is, score. Is, Great score. I think it's, I think it's Morricone's best work for, um, the pieces of music that accompany harmonica and Jill. Yeah. I'd say the only, um, better Western, like score moment in any movie I could think of is during the um, clock tower christening in Back to the Future Part Three with that na 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 you know they flip the drums and stuff. Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, great song, great song. 
It's classic. I was interested if after watching this in close proximity to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly would, would change your mind. I was also curious. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not a wrong opinion. I just um, – uh, I walked away from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly going like, oh, yeah, this stands so far above every other Western and most other movies I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really do love – once upon a time in the West, so I don't want it to make like I'm comparing like five star movies in all four of these movies that we're talking about this month, yeah, and, and some of the best examples of Western. So I don't want to make it seem like how dare you like that one because I actually like that is currently the popular choice. Um, but you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has like that, and I I know they're classic. It has that 2001 Space Odyssey quality for me, where it's like, oh, I. I'm watching one of the best movies of all time. Like I could send this out to, to aliens on another planet and be like, this is what we made for art. And they might go, uh, if they didn't eat us or, you know, could process our words, they might go, yeah, no, we get that. This yeah. Is good. Uh, it is ephemeral. It's, it's subjective. It's just that this movie yeah. speaks to my soul more. Um, yeah. I can, I can clearly admit that for a few dollars more, I wouldn't say festival of dollars for a few dollars more and good man, the ugly are better structured movies and come to a more satisfying conclusion. Um, but the high highs in this movie are just like not nothing in those movies makes me feel the, as deeply as this movie does. But anyways, this movie, we live in the universe with the talking horse and at the end of this movie, I would change my mind. <laughs> uh, I need to, I need to build a. Some sort of um, trans uh, trans dimensional portal now. Please do. That could be useful just, for a lot just of Just to win an argument. Yeah, just uh, for a ton of things, honestly. Uh, but we could use it for this first. I, yeah, I'm really – it would be better for me if it was just me grabbing a Blu-ray from that alternative universe. Um, but uh, – Wait, this is region B. I forgot nothing else changed. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, Harmonica is trying to look for Frank, um, who or Harmonica is coming to Frank, and he, he's he has moments to kill him earlier, but he really wants Frank to remember what he did to him, which we'll, I'll get to in a moment. Um, and uh, yeah, Jill uh, is sort of um, her 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 capture by Frank is sort of eluded. Uh, uh, because of the actions of Jason Robards, uh, pardon me, Cheyenne, played by Jason Robards, and uh, Harmonica, played by Charles Bronson, um, who team up after a daring sort of escape from a train um, after being captured by Frank. Um, they uh, they sort of team up because they both found uh, respect for Jill. Um, which we can get into later because I feel like it's the most interesting aspect of the movie is how the the, the characters in the movie resound even the villain resound to make jill the main character of the movie i think uh, it goes back to what i was saying right like they recognize a more hopeful future with 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 them not in with with them not in it and people like her uh working towards to make civilization better yeah they she sees a future all they see is the past yep exactly. um so um so their plan is essentially um, to turn in Cheyenne for his uh, his bounty, which is five thousand um, dollars. Buy out a plot of land in the open auction. Frank comes in, tries to buy buy after he wins tries to buy harmonica out still doesn't know who this fucking guy is but he's intrigued by him like intrigued yeah. by him enough to not because he him keeps instantly. saying names and every time he's like you're saying dead man's name you made him that way Frank. Like, yeah, Dave, yeah, Dave Jenkins, Calder Benson, 
famous Mortimer. <laughs> this is the point when Frank becomes isolated. Yeah. Um, because what Frank has done in this moment is he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take over this plot, uh, Mr. Trainman. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to d- become a." like a buyer in this program and you're going to have to buy out the plot from underneath me and make me rich at this point. I'm not just working for you. Now you're buying from me. The buyer has changed. The trade man tries to hire uh, Frank's own men. He says to Morton, he's like, I choo choo choose violence. (laughs) (laughs) And Morton hears a boom. Yeah, everyone gets gets it because of the train. Yeah. Yeah, they, because there's a lot of trains. Um, also, by the way, Morton, I think just I, this totally makes sense now that I've interpreted the character as like uh, just a guy who rides around on his train because it makes him feel powerful. And that's like one of the ways of his well, can't locomotion. Walk, yeah. He can't walk. He can't ride a horse, really. Um, but like he seems to just ride his train around in circles. <laughs> I know. Um, that's why he's so desperate to get the McBain plot of land. Like, like I've seen all this shit like a million times. We need to move sleep the train on forward. my train. Yeah, west, forward, never backward, and always twirling, 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 twirling. <laughs> towards the Pacific Ocean. So Morton hires Frank's own men for, out from underneath him. Frank, with the help of uh, harmonicas, because harmonica wants truth and recognition before he kills frank yeah um doesn't let frank die by his own men hands dash morton um because truth is bigger than capitalism um and while this is happening um yeah, jason robards has capitalism being bad or <laughs> this movie doesn't like capitalism very much um so cheyenne while this is happening attacks the train and finally slaughters um the remainder of frank's men and uh morton um and ironically i, I don't really have a place for this so ironically leaves morton who was hunting for the pacific ocean dying in a puddle in the desert uh, and they pipe in score of waves crashing against um or the sound of waves crashing against the beach which is fantastic jesus christ uh, that like hit me so hard and i hate so his character i also uh, like uh i also really love that like he's 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 dying after trying to kill frank and like frank has always kind of seen him as like a sniveling spineless money man right like with actually like Frank is the person who does the things in the old west and this this guy is kind of um pulling strings that he doesn't have the right to have which is why Frank introduces himself more directly and there's a there's a minor power struggle where again Morton doesn't use his own um you know shit that he built himself but just pays Frank's men that theoretically he trained and worked with to kill him um, I love that scene, though, of Frank looking at him, like, crawling in the puddle. And even though Frank is, like, a, you know, an evil bastard who likes shooting people, he's not even going to waste a bullet on him. Yeah. Like, this is how little I respect you. Like, I'm not even going to put you out of your misery. God, it's so fucking good. It's, it's so good. So, th- at this point, Frank is alone. Like, the, the plot has simplified. Yeah. The last act of the plot is Jill... Uh, sorry, it's it's Jill and her guys versus Frank. Like you know that it's a foregone conclusion that Frank is gonna that that Frank is still gonna come for them. But now Frank is not so much looking for money because he's lost on the plot of land. He's lost out on his big buyer. Frank is now looking for something else. He comes and and, and it, he comes to the plot of land, and Harmonica says, uh, "With plot of land, which by the way, um, McBain was completely right." 
um the 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 railroad is coming right the fuck through uh when you talk about the highs being super high i imagine you are also talking about the moment where jill's like uh he's out there and and chan's like yep what's he doing and and chan's like well he's whittling on a piece of wood i got a feeling that when he stops whittling something's gonna happen (laughs) that's like one of my favorite lines maybe in any movie that's that's actually weirdly part of i'll I'll get to in a moment there's an optimism streak at this end at the end of this very dark ending um yeah that like i think actually rings more true than just like at the end of the last three movies in this universe or the other one honestly just in all universes like the idea that jill has like hope for an actual future and developing a town and building a family and building like everything she can like on her own and she's excited about this actually like feels to me more optimistic than um nameless drifter gets a shitload of money hold on i i i don't know like, do you feel like she's feeling super, like, she's still alone, right? Like, not that that's, like, not that she needed to pick her, pick her, uh, Cheyenne or Harmonica, pick your, pick your man that you're going to marry. Like, I, I, I hate that moment. That's part of the reason I don't love the ending, but, well, well I do love this part of the ending. No, I know, but I, I do think, like, let's, let's even put that whole thing aside, which feels, again, very, like, She's uh, got to well, marry someone. One of these three yeah. men. There are only three There's men. all these men that, like, <laughs> they talk about her cleavage. They have I only know us. three men. Yeah, I mean. It's actually maybe more historically accurate. She only knows three men. She has to marry one of them. <laughs> what, is Wobbly still in the picture? No, Wobbly's dead. All right, Wobbly got his suspenders shot right the fuck off. So what is he going to wear at the wedding? Yeah, uh, but I... I do think that, like, setting aside that, let's just pretend none of that is a factor. Like, she won. She gets to continue the legacy of the man that she loved, but without the family that she wanted to be a part of. So, like, it, it feels like a Pyrrhic or an empty victory, like, at best, even if it – I don't know. Like, I, th- it, it almost feels like to me, especially as, as it pans up and shows the railroad being – built and every character is either dead or sad like it seems to me is like um one of those we've won we've built a better future but not for any of us moments even uh, for jill uh no because jill made her station the station is the station is in progress and she's got her workers going and but Jill's, it's a but it's a monument right, right to someone else's dream and i don't mean that yeah. like jill's yeah. dream was to have the family that's part of the melancholy yeah jill wanted jill wanted love and affection and acceptance for who she was and she wanted to to stop um this sort of exploitational journey that she was on um as a sex worker on uh, new orleans and instead she's um she's landed with with mcbain her dead husband's dream and yeah. i think like one of the things that happens over the course of the movie is she gradually like tries to get get rid of that dream as fast as possible and just make some quick cash and then eventually she accepts that like would it be so bad to build something new and I, I feel like there's a melancholy there because it's not something that she originally wanted, but it's something that she init- she eventually accepts as as uh, where she'll be. And she will be, you know, by by the standards of what every character has said in this movie through and through, she will be a, a rich woman at the end of this. Yeah, but I mean, that's definitely the melancholy stuff, right? Like she 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 very explicitly she gets accused of 
going after money. And, and what you learn over the movie is that she did love McBain and did want to be a mother to this family. Like, that's what she wanted. She wanted a domestic life, which is a whole, like, other reading that I don't want to get into. It, it, I mean, Jill's such a good character. It feels like that is, like, a feminist empowerment choice to be like, actually, I'm. I, this is what I want. And even though society has said that I can't have this because of the way that society views my job to this point, I... I'm uh, not, you know, I'm going to do what I I want to do. So, um, in, in that reading, I feel like um, it still is like again, she's she's preserving a legacy of her dream, but not living her dream. Like, um, you know, it'd be it'd be weird if her last line in the movie was like, "This all worked out pretty good for me," because that yeah. that is not how you're leaving her, even if she does have a victory over all the forces that. Uh, you know, f- f- conspired against her for violence and capitalism. Yeah, but the the thing that I think that the movie is is kind of closing in on as it it narrows down um, is and as the chaos dwindles to a, a point. Oh yeah, and um, harmonica kills Frank. Uh, we'll get to there. We'll get there in a minute. Um, Jill is just a and the more fascinating character. <laughs> a few horses um is that uh the movie dwindles down to just jill um jason robards yeah. cheyenne is injured in the the shootout at the train and he says yeah i gotta go too and he just goes and he volunteers to just die in the desert so he yeah have i mean part of her he doesn't have to she doesn't have to care for him he just doesn't have to well jill doesn't he, know that he shot right she has no idea nobody nobody yeah, knows yeah. until he basically nobody knows is just you. confessing to harmonica like i just need you to get away from me because i don't want you to have to watch me die yeah, and then his last words is, "Tell my son to respect the cock." <laughs> Here's an important thing to know about the host of this show: we've seen not just this movie, but other movies. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, actually the only movie I've seen. I've been faking it for 250 episodes. Oh, so just the word "cock" made you laugh, but you have no like point of reference for what the fuck I'm talking about. No, no. What What do you mean? So. In a completely different, unrelated movie that just uh-huh. happens to star the same actor, which is actually here's the thing: super common for actors to appear in one movie and then also in know. other movies. Like if it's kind of like, well, I know I, that's why I'm explaining it so so detailed in a detailed fashion. Like kind of like if you say are an electrician, you wouldn't go like fix one piece of electricity in someone's house. You might think of that as like a career that you go like when outlets need to be put in or wiring is messed up like i'm gonna do electricity shit in all these people's houses so a lot of these people that are in this movie they didn't just like want to pretend to be someone else just the one time but they tried to do it for like a job for a lot of times and so fast forward 30 31 years from from this movie, and Jason Robarbs again plays a completely different person, completely unrelated. Hmm. This is where the com- this is where the comedy kind of comes from that I was that was that was getting at. Wouldn't and people be he, confused? Well, if sorry, go let, on, go If on. people yeah. let me finish, I feel like it'll all come together. Oh, so, okay. in this movie, Magnolia, directed by Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson, no relation to Sergio Leone. Um, <laughs> He he's a dying man who has a son played by Tom Cruise, another actor you've you may have heard of and not known the actor because you've only seen this movie. Um, 
but you may have heard like uh, cruise control on cars, for example. I was I was going to say Mission Impossible Cruise Control. That's a movie, right? Yep. Uh, it, those are names of movies that have been combined in kind of a portmanteau fashion, as they say. Uh, so, anyways, uh, so he has on play by time. You said Manto. I thought we were talking about Mancock. Yeah, I'm going to get to the Mancock. Um, okay, sorry, going. So he uh, he has a son named Tom Cruise. I forget it, it, Mackie. I think Jim Mackie. His name Jim Mackie. You don't know why I'm asking you. Like you about, know. are you talking about Vic Mackie? I've seen the show The Shield. I've seen uh, one movie. I'm, I'm pretty Vic, sure Vic and, and the Shield and like season four, episode seven of The Shield. I know. Uh, I've read your bio. Um, <laughs> so he plays a guy, and his whole thing is like. Uh, misogyny that goes like door to door or hotel to hotel and his whole thing is respect the cock so because Jason Robart's son in a completely different movie is Tom Cruise who has a catchphrase called respect the cock I thought it would be funny that his dying words referenced a movie that some people, not you specifically but other people, could be aware of as a way of kind of letting listeners know that hey, this guy has either seen other movies or knows how to operate movie websites like IMDb. So are you saying this whole this whole podcast thing, which for me was just uh, how long I could take a con man kind of thing, just reading Wikipedia pages and seeing how long I could take um, to convince you that I had seen movies, which by the way, um, it took 250 episodes. Um, yeah, it's like 252. Uh, so you, this is just a, like a vanity project for you to talk about other movies you've seen while you're talking about one movie. Yeah, we're not releasing this anywhere. I've been trying to educate you the whole time. Oh, cool. Is it working? In a way, I feel like the master has become the master and the apprentice remains the apprentice. Yeah, nothing's changed master apprentice wise at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like this Jason Robar guy likes to master bait. He, he's been in at least two movies. Because he respects his own cock. No. He doesn't. His son does. His son respects his. I'll son. send you. A, look after this. I'll send you a whole PDF I have about a family tree. <laughs> the tree has no branches and no leaves. It's just a stick in the ground. <laughs> On the top of the stick, it says Jason Robards with an arrow <laughs> pointing down to the middle. It says Tom Cruise. <laughs> can you also put separately? Um, I can really like the tree. This a, point a is a blank has, canvas. Can, can There's a lot a, of room on this paper. I can do whatever you want, Peter. Can you make a a, a graph that just has um, likes to masturbate, doesn't like to masturbate, Tom Cruise, Jason Robards, and just put axes in the boxes for whichever? Well, I don't know if he likes to masturbate. He just is yelling at a room full of men to respect his cock. Okay, um, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, uh, you can add another column to it, I guess. Um, likes. I'll do. An, I'll do another tree. Another tree. <laughs> no branches. No leaves. No, just one stick. <laughs> just, just, just basically a stick in the ground. And I'm going to say Tom Cruise with an arrow pointing down that says masturbating. God, do we have to do Magnolia on the show now? <laughs> just a tiny. Yeah, the circle is now for three hundred. We'll do Magnolia. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that's a good movie, so that doesn't fit, seem to fit with our our theme. Our theme. Um, we also did Monster Trucks. That's a good movie. Great movie. I have absolutely no fucking clue where I was going with that. Oh, uh, so yeah, okay. I got it, got it, got it. <laughs> the point is that progress is going to go forward with or without her, right? Um, and she can, she can, uh, th this progress has been, this this piece um, has been worked for with her, her effort, her dead husband's effort. 
um, and by a little bit of effort from um, these two men who believe in her and want better things for her. And uh, they basically say, like, this is this is this is a, f- a future for you. You can abandon it if you want, but like, this is something that you can do. And Jill ha- has to, at the end, decide if she's going to do it or not. And then she, one of the final shots is her very happily going out and serving water to the railroad workers, um, who aren't her workers. You know, they're not working on the station or anything. They're just railroad workers. That it's her accepting um, the the the, uh, the progress and trying to ride ride the train of progress forward. Um, to use a very clumsy metaphor. Uh, well, I mean, the so Quad City DJs made a whole career out of it, so I don't know if it's a bad metaphor. <laughs> it at least functions for the purposes of me needing a metaphor and there being a train <laughs> in the shot. Um, so the idea is the idea for me is, is is just that, like, yes, she's apprehensive about it, and yes, there's a sense of melancholy because this wasn't her dream originally. But like, she is going to be able to build a little empire here. Um, and like in that sense, like it feels like a more optimistic ending because like after all this damage, the excessive trauma that she's been through, she gets to become like a business person. Like she gets, to, she gets to pr- progress some sort of dream and push and have the, the financial capital to push forward in the dream. She gets to be part of the yeah. new world. She doesn't have to die with the old world. Like the, the other three guys that were courting her or I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know if Cheyenne's courting her, but it just made the sentence cleaner. I, I, I feel, yeah, I don't. I don't think necessarily Cheyenne. I think he. Is. I think he. He kind of like hints that he might rape her, and then he. Uh, and then they have a conversation. And he like immediately yeah. is like respectful of her. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I. I don't know. I. I think the the idea that like this is a better future than one where the Mortons of the world are and the Franks of the world are running the show is right. But it, it feels like a sense of altruism as opposed to uh, like a personal victory, I guess. It, it is a personal victory, but it's not – it's not like – you know, uh, life gave her lemon. She made lemonade. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, that's, that's the only reason I, 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 th- I think the ending works. I have issues with – I think the ending works. I think it works. I have issues with all the steps it gets to get there before the ending. Um, so, like, I have an issue with, I, you know, I don't actually have much of an issue with the final shootout between Frank and Harmonica, except for that I was, like, watching the whole movie and I was like, you know, Bronson has this beat up, tanned face. This is what a cowboy would look like. You know, a cowboy would be sunbeaten. They didn't really have sunscreen back then. They would occasionally, you know, they wear long shirts, long sleeves, and they would occasionally, like, you know, certain cowboys, like, in South America. America and stuff would put like mud or different clays and stuff on their skin certain times a year if they had a bad sunburn or something. But like this is this is probably what most cowboys looked like, like tanned to shit, right? Like leather bags and then they would die young so they didn't have to deal with melanoma. Um, And then eventually I found out, oh, a little bit of Mexican face here um, because they show harmonicas the reason the source behind his his grievance with frank and that's that he had and this is the best shot in western history i think um there's a a shot of frank approaching uh a young mexican man putting this harmonica in his mouth and his teeth specifically right in his teeth and um a mexican man i need to clarify because I was mentioning Charles Bronson. I don't want you to think that they're separate thoughts. Charles Bronson is playing a Mexican man. <laughs> Lithuanian-American exploitation movie hero 
He's playing a Mexican man. Um, he uh, he puts the gun in or this harmonica in the guy's teeth, um, and he has somebody standing on his shoulders, and the camera gradually pans out to reveal this beautiful archway, um, and. Uh, some gunmen standing around and uh, an older, uh, ostensibly Mexican man. I believe he was a Spanish actor, but, you know, let's keep moving. Um, hanging by the neck um, from uh, a, uh, a, a a pole on top of the arch. Um, and they it pulls back to reveal these beautiful mountains. And, like, this is, I think, the best shot in Western film history. Like... This is it's, it's it's insanely gorgeous. And after hours of anticipation, finally, we're there. We're here. We find out what harmonica is so harped on. And it's that he made harmonica stand and support the weight of his brother until his legs faltered, making him feel not just like survivor's guilt, but mm-hmm. like murder guilt for the death of his own brother. And harmonica came back to town to finally put Frank, the family murderer piece of shit uh into the ground um and that moment of revelation hits at the same time the gunshot hits and frank spins around we see a moment of realization in frank's face a moment of guilt it's not pain uh, in a traditional sense it's emotional pain um as frank's like oh god i have done massively awful things in my fucking life and yeah. uh that's i mean that that moment that moment is only tainted by the Mexican face. I, I, um, it's, it's in terms of editing, in terms of production, in terms of performances, it's, it's just, just about perfect. But, um, I, I just can't, I can't quite swallow, um, the revelation that not only is Charles Bronson Mexican, um, but he is, would look like this young Mexican boy. Yeah, I guess, uh, and I don't mean this to be dismissive. It's just, this is the, era. uh, it's it's not just the era. Like I've now watched like twelve or thirteen of these things, and half of them take place in Mexico. And they you know who's also Mac- not Mexican? Eli Wallach. <laughs> yeah, apparently they've never called anyone. Like, did they know that they could call Mexican actors that that was a thing? I mean, there's so many of these movies take place in the Mexican Revolution, and you know they use uh brown face and other offensive spanish and italian actors which like we haven't touched on that that racial component because i don't think we're really the people to do it but it's it's, it it would be it would be an interesting conversation to like hiring spanish actors to play spanish actors putting a bunch of bronzer and dark makeup on them and making them play mexicans like yeah that has a that has a dark colonial history that has to be rivaled with blackface, right? Because the, yeah, I mean, I the Spaniards did horrific things to the indigenous population of Mexico. Yeah, um, I definitely think. I mean, I would, I would love to just to hear a breakdown of that. I don't know if a person who's only seen this movie in season four, episode seven of the Shield, is the right person to tackle it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't think we're the people to do it. I just think it's a good, it's, a, it's a button. I wanted to note that I was like, yeah. I actually, in a, in a weird way. Is it less offensive to have an Italian play a Mexican than a Spanish <laughs> <Yeah>. person? <laughs> like, Probably. And, and I'm going down the spiral, and I'm like, yeah, we don't need to. We don't need to no, keep going. That's, uh, that is definitely yes. Uh, uh, when, when you try to figure out what's the least offensive uh, stereotype, uh, dig two graves. <laughs> <laughs> one for Thank yourself, you and one one for your metaphor. <laughs> 
but yeah, it was. I just had to call that moment out because it was it was a little bit glaring for me. But I actually generally really love that that sequence. I think it's like I said. I think it's one of the best sequences and, and in, in uh, one of the best sequences in, in spaghetti film history and Western history. Yeah, fantastic moment, and uh, it actually contrasts really well with the good, the mad, the ugly. Because like, you know, Lee Van Cleef's character. Uh, affectionately known as the bad in that movie, or Angel Eyes, uh, is kind of an unrepentant murderer like Frank, right? Like, he has a code, but that code, it's not like the code was handed down like fucking the Ten Commandments. Like, he wrote the code where it's like, kill people for money, got it. Under any circumstances, kill whoever you can, get get the money. Like, that is the code that he lives by, and um, even other people who as we talked about, who live by a code of try to get money, aren't as, like, uh, sadistically uh, gleeful in their in their murder murderness as as, uh, as Angel Eyes is. But, like, Angel Eyes, when he is faced with death at the end of the movie, it seems to be something that he is not worried about from the sense that he is basically like, I try to shoot people and I get their money and someday someone's probably going to shoot me. Frank, part of the reason that he's kept harmonica around um, and ultimately feels like has that moment of, oh, shit, ah, I have inflicted too much pain to get out of this one scot-free. Like that look on his face with having Henry Fonda give that look is extremely helpful to the, to the moment as well. But it, it's so fucking good. So dude. good. But it's but it's different, right? Frank is an irredeemable bastard throughout this entire movie. But he's not someone who is like live by the sword, die by the sword, right? He is thinking that under any circumstances, he's going to be the meanest, the smartest, uh, the most ready to do what the circumstances demand. And he's going to be uh, – he's going to survive. He sees himself not as a um, – as a, a live by a sword, die by a sword type guy, but as a cockroach. Like, he wants to do whatever it takes to survive uh, and end up on top at the at the end of this world, right? And so, that is in sharp contrast to most of the other Leone or even Spaghetti Western villains who seems uh, somewhat maniacal in their – in their attempts to gather wealth and money, but also all feel like an excuse. The the Charles Bronson callbacks seem to have a little bit of a death wish. I'm going to do this till someone finally comes for me. Until then, I'm going to am- amass all the wealth, kill all the people that I can, but I don't necessarily have something that I'm clinging to in life. And Frank does. And I that that is just so different from everything we've seen from Leone it's different from most of these other spaghetti westerns. It's different than most of the westerns, right? Like it it just feels like western villains have a sense of, you know, they are they are taking advantage of a lawlessness that they recognize. Like there's no fucking rules here. So I could go at any day and I need to fucking, you know, seize the day and try to do everything I can while I have a chance. But the reason I am successful is because I am not uh, – no one is around to rein me in. 
and and I think that adds a lot to Frank as a character and why he's remembered as one of of the greatest like villains of all time, you know, period, is that he has the same level of sadism, but it's sadism with an aim, aim of survival, which is not something that you normally see from these like, I'm going to shoot a kid so that kid never says the name Frank to anyone and I get caught. Yeah, it's actually like the inverse of the Wild Bunch in a weird way. They're both they're both about people staring down the death of the West, right? Yeah. Um, which we've talked about, like, so many Westerns are about the death of the West. Like, most Westerns are about the death of the West because movies were made after the West was dead. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the... Um, well, most, most of the death of the 60s didn't come in, like... Till the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> Especially an Italian man reflecting on movies that he saw as a child, which were reflections of accounts, which were reflections of people that actually were out in the West. <laughs> like yeah. the death was the West was 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 far, far dead before, uh, you know, Leone was even born. So um, the, the the these are men reflecting on the death of the West. The Wild Bunch is a bunch of guys saying, you know what? Fuck it. If we're. If we are idols of an old world, um, let's go down and let's kill some fucking bastards with us. Let's 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 do this thing. Like it, it's it's kind of like a beautiful it's kind of a beautiful ending in its like just punk like anger. You're like fuck my life, fuck your life too. Um, whereas Frank is like Frank doesn't have that moment that like you know maybe no. I need to die. Frank never has that moment of realization no. where like maybe I need to die. He just has that moment where he's like. So I need to face my truth at some point. And if he had happened to one again, win against Harmonica and probably need to win against Cheyenne too, um, shit, like he he may not have faced his his that moment where he's staring into the camera, open eyed, just realizing the horrors that he has brought into this world. Yeah, I I think I think that's right. Well, just the idea that he keeps Harmonica around, right? Like he had chances to kill him, so but he, he was, had him handcuffed against a fucking radiator, and, the, yeah, and he, he shot someone in front of him. He already he, had his gun out. <laughs> he was enticed by the idea of like, what is what is what is this guy's aim? And that's a very like Frank thing to think, right? Which is. I need to figure out what this guy wants so I can put those pieces together. Like, are more people coming from me where uh, Angel Eyes uh, and maybe even, you know, maybe maybe everyone in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly probably would have just shot him because why keep this liability around? But Frank doesn't think like that. Like, he doesn't think he, – he, he, if he thinks that he could use this person to his advantage, that's part of survival, right? Like, you don't just kill anyone who – you you don't know what uh that that can is in, uh you know that you don't know what they want because what they want could ultimately align with your with your goals where you know Lee Van Cleef and Angel Eyes uh, which is the same person in that movie like has no interest in that because other people are a liability and and can be used but if he's not going to even let me know who he is that I can't use him in the immediate future. And if I can't use him in the immediate future, then there's no reason to keep him alive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, that's, that's why that moment lands. So, so hard at the end and just seeing those blue eyes, but not hard and scary, but those blue eyes broken and scared. Um, is just an excellent coda for a movie that like when it begins, you're like, uh, Leone has made us patient before. 
Um, he's made us wait for this big shootout before. You know, it doesn't feel that different from the beginning of Good Man the Ugly, where all these guys slowly march into town to face off against uh, Eli Wallach. Doesn't feel that different, right? They the, the, the scene just drags and drags and drags. Morton and Frank are on this like path of of um, trying to like figure out how each of them can parse out their dream in the West, but like both of them come to to kind of nothing um, because there's an avenging angel out to to get him. And what's funny is that Morton's dream ends up coming true in a sense. Morton wants to yeah. build a railroad out to the Pacific. Morton's dream is happening no matter what. Morton's dead. Morton's alive. Doesn't matter. The money has already been put down and there's already been workers hired to, to you know, the, the, the Chinese immigrants and the Mexican immigrants have already been brought in to, um, to, 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 to lay track. Um, Even fucking Pecos Bill and Paul Bunyan and John Henry couldn't stop a railroad for that long. <laughs> they couldn't. And they, they really tried. I mean, they um, had Paul Bunyan physically push a train. <laughs> or maybe I Paul Bunyan was hacking down. I can't believe we uh, fucking school. covered Tall Tale before we covered any of the Leone movies. I love our priorities on this show. Uh, it was an incredible journey. <laughs> it was. <laughs> One thing I, but, uh, you know, kind of as a capper on, on Frank is that like. We did that Nick Stahl movie before any Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> well, Clint, Nick Stahl is the true hero of the West. I mean, um, Nick Stahl probably has less uh, toxic political views. Probably. But I don't want to I mean, find out. I don't want to. I mean, I'm not going to put money on it. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, you're just gauging probabilities. You're building models. Uh, yeah, this is the third parallel universe. <laughs> it's all part of my my book, the God. three parallel universes. <laughs> God, uh, let me let me just put a capper on Frank. Yeah, real put a quick. capper. Um, but yeah, Frank's death is sort of a foregone conclusion, and it's not a contest like at the end of Good Man the Ugly, and for a few dollars more, like all three of the previous movies, basically. Um, for a few dollars more in Good Man the Ugly, it's not a test of who's the quickest quick draw. Um. This is this is not a this is not a test of you know your skill as the biggest bastard, um, though obviously Frank lost that that part of the deal. Um, the deal was that Frank faced his truth, and he faced a man in front of him that he was a little scared of, um, and then Frank became very scared of who he had become because this avenging angel had finally arrived and his death is now a foregone conclusion. Um, yeah. And, you know, who knows? The slaughter of the McBains might have been the worst thing Frank ever did. And that's why this timing happens. It also might have been right in the middle. <laughs> might have done much worse things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. I, I think we're, I'm on final thoughts. Like there, we were able to talk a lot about this movie that happened in this universe uh, and other universes, I think, throughout. Um, I, you know, it, there's there's less moments because the moments are so, so extended. So, I think the perfect capper before we get to final thoughts, Peter, is let's, let's go through your – I read it on the internet, so it must be true because uh, Hillary Clinton's actually in jail. 420 Hitler said it. Um, what? 
what what what's the alternate interpretation of Veronica's character? I don't I don't I don't put a whole lot of stock in this uh, the way that I put stock into uh, like one or two of these other theories and usually this is like this is the classification of um this is the classification of uh you know fan theory that I absolutely hate that the person was dead the whole time. However, the movie does begin with our lead character getting shot in a shootout, basically never remarking on it. It appears to be right on his heart. <laughs> and then yeah. the movie just carries on, carries on. Jason Robards mentions it. J- Charles Bronson doesn't seem all that concerned about it. Charles Bronson doesn't walk off and die at the end. <laughs> Charles Bronson for days holds this horrific bloody wound. And then after the final shootout happens, Charles Bronson just walks off. We see that he still has that horrific wound that went all the way through his body. Like, I don't understand any other interpretation of that other than a sort of high plains drifter, pale rider style uh, thing that like this man is 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 dead. His purpose, you know, he's a revenant or he's an avenging angel. He's he's a man here to 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 set right what's wrong and sort of mm-hmm. say goodbye. He, it's he's the he is the past of the West coming to make the past past and let's push to the the progress of the future, no matter if it's better or worse. It's an alternate interpretation or way to, way to view the movie through a prism of just giving a more explicit explicit uh, creaturefication or whatever to a role that, that uh, Harmonica already possesses, right? One of an avenging angel who is unmoored to the laws and bounds of physicality or in some cases rationality in order to ultimately serve his purpose of – uh, his comeuppance and vendetta against the villain. So I like I, I made a bunch of jokes about it because internet fan theories are definitely a uh, there's there's one for every movie basically. Um, but I like I sometimes like watching the James Bond movies through the prism of James Bond being a code name and like it's just you know movies that I watch a, a lot. Sometimes it's fun to in your in your head canon to give them a different spin and um this is one that it's not like it's not like toxic or bothersome (laughs) yeah and i think like i think like there's a decent chance that like of the of the three men that wrote it one of them intended uh for harmonica to be a a, 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 an actual ghost this movie does have horror movie vibes before i move to my final thoughts like that's actually maybe why i i like this movie so much more than the other ones um the morricone score is my favorite morricone score uh of the four um largely because of uh harmonica song as well as the theme song which is basically jill's theme song um harmonica's song is i've listened to like i think a thousand times i i've since i've been in like seventh grade and i grabbed these soundtracks uh i've listened to it so many times it's this beautiful mix of like discordant uh sort of sloppy performance like the 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 harmonica part is like sort of wobbly and and scared and then these strings come in and this electric guitar comes in in this really swelling form um and then when it's time for the movie to use to find something beautiful, like Jill is something that's like, you know, a harmed past, but a, 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 a maybe a prophetess future. Um, they they come up with this really lovely mix of that, the sort of melancholy but hopeful song in the in the theme song. Um, and there's this shot that I think is another one of the greatest shots 
in Western history. Like this movie has in a, in a, in a sequence of movies that have some of the best shots ever shot. (laughs) Um, there's this moment where Jill walks into a train station and, and then we see her through the window and then the camera pans up to an aerial view of this town flagstaff. Yeah. And flag flagstone, a flagstone. And I like my, my eyes started welling up. Like it's such a, it's, I'm like thinking about it now and my eyes are starting to well up. Like it's, it's, it's like one of those shots in film history that like, I don't think it gets talked about enough where they're like, they used, okay, obviously this is a much more expensive, they had American money to play around with. They built a whole fucking set that had with so many fucking extras. They, they built it on a scale that, you know, Leone had never had this much money to play around with. And it ended up biting him in the butt because the movie bombed. But like when they finally reveal the town and the fact that this is like, this is progress. We're at this stage. We're in this like sort of final death throes of the West. And it's this melancholy that like the old world is dying, but like people are thriving. People are, are, are building new futures and they're all joining together into a sense of community. Whereas like in the previous Leone movies, the community was seen as sort of a poison and gross kind of little group of weirdos. Like we talked, we joked about it at the fistful of dollars. Um, like the coffin maker helps kill uh, the Baxters and the, yeah. and the, and the, the, the Rojas or the Rojas. And uh, it's like, <laughs> what? you don't have a job now, man. The whole town was gangsters <laughs> or like for a few dollars more, all the, all the townsfolk are just weirdos. And this, it seems like it's just like, this is a, this is, these are just working people trying to figure out their, their way through the future. The sheriff isn't corrupt or anything. He's just trying to figure out what to do with this, this widow. And, I, 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 Morricone's score lands so much there that the only thing I don't like about Morricone's score is, um, he, it's very much focused on giving each character a theme song. And I think he needed a few more ecstasy of gold moments. The moment in, um, in Good Band the Ugly where, where Eli Wallach's character is running through, Tuco is running through the cemetery. I think it needed a few more moments where you're like, this is a brand new song. It doesn't sound like any of the other songs. It's going to punch you right in the face. We needed a few more of these. <laughs> Um, yeah. Even though it's far more of a character-driven piece than Good Man the Ugly, which is more of like a road movie dash plot-driven movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great summation. I am super surprised to hear you say that this is more of a horror movie when, as you just mentioned, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly finale uh, takes place in a cemetery where one of the most horrific things of all time is it's filled with skeletons, Peter. Like, yeah, and uh, I forgot the part where Tuco takes his top off and dances to Bella Lugosi's dead. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's not an Ed Wood horror movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I uh, do you want me to just do my final thoughts and you can cap it off? Oh, I thought you did. Go ahead. Keep going. No, no. Oh, man. <laughs> you don't know how much more of a blowhard I can be. Uh, um, no, I go ahead. This is a movie that very much speaks to my soul, I think, more than the other movies. The other movies, uh, like, have a sense of cleverness. Like, they're like a good conversation with a friend. Um, They're funny and they have a little bit of sharpness. And there's a moment where there's, like, a recognition of reality. But, like, it comes right on back to being just, like, a... uh, Like, an exciting piece of work. Like, it it makes you understand how the power of editing and, and scoring. This is something that, like... 
it, while at just as technically impressive, I think as uh, and more so than the previous movies, um, the sense of ambition and scope here um, is, is obviously important. But the fact that Leone chose after all this to do a sort of um, melancholy Western to make this movie that's like more horrifying than it is exciting. They only have one or two sequences in the movie. You know, there's this train shootout where the guy puts his fucking boot, his fucking gun in his boot shoe so yeah. he can sh- shoot a guy through the window. Like, other than that, the movie's not very funny. Like, the previous movies are way funnier and a better sense yeah. of humor. Um, and the, the the movie is unruly. The movie, it's, 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 uh, by the time it comes together, you realize that Leone and, and Argento and Bertolucci, they, they wrote up this pastiche of movies, of, of Western movies. And, and when they finally came time to put it all together, they didn't quite know how the pieces fit. Like Jason Robards at the end, he just sort of wanders off and dies. Like that's, that's not great writing, right? Jason yeah. Robards is an amazing actor, so it works, but like, that's not great writing. Um, but all of this, this, this comes back to like what it makes me feel in in my soul, which is <clears throat> that it's it's a movie about death. It's a movie about letting go. It's a movie about finding new futures. It's a movie about knowing when it's time to step aside. Um, and for that, like that is that that's something that will always speak to me more than um, like excitement and thrills. Um, and I'm not in any way discounting the movies that uh, we, we've covered this month, but like that's always going to mean more to me, um, even though it has more rough edges um, and it has more misogyny, I think. But it also like this was Leone and Bertolucci trying to to make one of these movies actually about a woman. And I think it's largely successful. Um, so for me, um, the, the fact that this is a uh, this is a more mature effort. This is a this is a more um, sad and reflective film um, is why it's still my favorite spaghetti Western. Um, if you can call a movie that was partially shot in America and financed with American money a spaghetti Western, regardless, it's still uh, my favorite Western. Yeah, I, I think that's a great summation. And, uh, you know, I, I know, again, we, we mentioned this. I'm. <laughs> To compare it to the other films and say which one's your favorite, it's it's definitely a lot of like splitting hairs, right? And it it kind of depends on like <clears throat> what what is the more important thing to you out of out of uh, this movie. It's kind of like like regardless of um you know which which movie you're seeing or in my analogy, I'm about to say which character you're playing as. Street Fighter Two is a great game right sometimes you want something that's light and fun and like uh like that just bounces all around like a chun li type character to play as and sometimes you want something with a little more weight and heft like a blanca who's you know not going to be jumping across the sides of the screen but at the end of the day both of them have super fucking cheap moves that you can just do uh, and ultimately end up winning pretty easily unless people are really good at the game, in which case, fuck them. Who wants to play with them? Um, so, yeah, you get your Chun-Li who can bounce all around. But at the end of the day, you just mash that A button. And she does the kick forever and people die. And Blanca, you just, you know, hunker down and hit down and B and get that electricity going until everyone that walks up to you gets thrown back very annoyingly. And, and at the end of the day... Regardless of whether you choose the light, bouncy Chun-Li or the thing with a little more heft, like a Blanca, you're probably going to win because you've just played a great match of Street Fighter 2 slashed watched uh, a movie by a master. 
an expert analogy, and I think a perfect closeout to our month, dollars and senseless violence, aka antipasta for the antihero. And it's in typical Italian Western uh, fashion, we're going to have seven we, titles for this. The thing. love, <laughs> yeah, the we, the love, the watch. <laughs> we love the watch. Uh, we love the watch. Uh, yeah, that's what we should have called it. Uh, yeah, Peter, this was a blast. Uh, it's uh, you. You always know that we're doing a month that we are just fucking super psyched about when we start watching all these things that are just in the periphery of it, and we watch a ton of spaghetti westerns, and both start going like, "How could we extend this? Could we do a special episode on these other movies? Could we figure out a way to quickly watch more?" So this this likely will. Um, we, we talked at the beginning of this month about we kind of weirdly waited a long time to do Westerns. And uh, and I don't think we'll be waiting another five years before we do our next Western theme or even spaghetti Western theme. We uh, joked about yeah. doing similar to Star Trek, just doing a side cast whenever we <laughs> wanted to cover a Western. A spaghetti Western. Who knows? We've done weirder things. So that is definitely not not in the books. But It's just making uh, up for lost time. We've done like yeah. six westerns in five years. Yeah. Um, so this was this was a ton of fun, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to doing more. And I hope you guys enjoyed it because, you know, one of our it's it's funny we've been doing this podcast for five years, but there still is somewhat of a reticence sometimes to do these kind of like movie classics just because. Uh, you know, there's a million things that have been written about these movies. I read two whole books about these movies, right? Um, which doesn't always happen when we're doing like Palm Springs or something like that or or some random Lovecraft movie that no one's heard of but us. Uh, so – but at the end of the day, like we, we – you know, we love to watch and we, sh- we like to talk about movies that we love to watch and these uh, definitely fulfill that. Uh, and we're going to do it again. Can't stop us now. Um, Peter, next month – we're going back to the well. We took a break last year for Musical May, even though we had a surprise Musical May episode on Cats, which is a movie that – this is 100% true. We recorded it right after I watched it and both of us were like, I don't really remember anything about this movie. It looks like a fever dream. I'm looking at my notes and I'm not quite connecting parts of this movie that apparently I just watched and paid <laughs> attention to. A year later, I don't even remember what we talked about on our episode about Cats. I have no idea. Uh, everything. It, it's, a, it's a huge issue. Cats is uh, ephemeral. You can't hold on to it in any capacity. So we're trying to go back and do Musical May 4. Yeah, sure. Here's some more. Uh, where we're covering uh, the the first three weeks actually kind of fits a very particular theme, which is musicals that are not commonly considered musicals. We're doing uh, um, Stop Making Sense, The Talking Heads, Jonathan Demme, uh, uh, Rock Concert Umentary with uh, Carrie Nelson. Uh, and then we are doing That Thing You Do with just Peter and myself and Pop Star with Doug Lehman. And then we are wrapping up the month with something that doesn't quite fit that theme, but a movie that uh, Peter and I have been kind of wanting to do just because uh, it's, it's a very goofy movie and one that I have a very close personal connection to. Peter didn't know fucking anything about, which really fits. Yeah, I didn't know anything about uh, a goofy movie. Uh, yeah, but we didn't do that, even though that is technically a musical with all the Powerline songs included. Um, 
But uh, so we decided to do Jesus Christ Superstar and two other people that have very strong opinions on Jesus Christ Superstar, Rick Kelly and Kerry Nelson, uh, joined us for that one. And that's a great episode that we're going to have to figure out how to cut it, cut down from eight hours. <laughs> but it could just cover the whole month. But it's uh, we've recorded all those and they're all fucking great. And I can't wait to release them. Uh, Peter, I'll see you next week when we television oh it's, it's gonna be so fucking sick the only thing that's not exciting for us recording this is that we like we don't technically get to watch it again or record about it again. i know i know i know it's like we get to hype it up but we don't actually get to <sighs> go back to those memories it's very sad very melancholy but you will listen next week bye bye Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs)